Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Monday morning, right? Monday morning, May Can the 8th, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. 8436610937 You good, Josh? I am now. <laughs> okay, good deal. Good deal. Good deal. It's live radio. Those things happen on rare yeah. occasion. The, the, the rarer, the, the better. I, I'm not adding. The, the interesting buttons, way to the start the matter. week. The buttons yeah. matter where they are, right? Good morning, Royal Rev. <laughs> yeah, you got to mash those buttons and turn those buttons. And um, if you press the button, it doesn't work. If you mash the button, see, that's something you'll become uh, more familiar with. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So the radio show will be short by about, you know, six or eight seconds this morning but no biggie i'll make up for it uh in rapid <laughs> you can, fashion you squeeze in some extra words when you start getting your celsius in well, later I mean, you you had the line of the weekend i mean i'll give rev credit oh, rev really? had the line of the weekend he already ever does that but he did um rev said that gamecock baseball is the mcrib it's back but for a limited time only <laughs> so, so, so we can relate to that one in what one in five of the last six conference yeah. games uh that ain't getting it done but i think i said a few weeks back after everybody was on cloud nine after the Florida series, hey, baseball's a finicky game. It giveth and it taketh away. And um, rough weekend against Auburn, one and two of the series, and then get swept in Kentucky, which ain't no shame. I mean, Kentucky's a good baseball program and a good baseball team. The Gamecocks have some injuries, but I think Rev's um, line <laughs> is probably the line of the weekend. Gamecock baseball is the McRib. It is back. But for a limited but time. only for only. a limited time. <laughs> and apparently that limited time uh, ran out. Speaking of baseball, one of the better baseball games that I've seen in a long, long, long time was yesterday between the Atlanta Braves and the Baltimore Orioles. I mean, it was a very, very good baseball game. Very entertaining. I don't watch the entire game like you do. Mm-hmm. So when we get in extra innings, I'd forgotten about they put a guy at second base. Yep. And, and I'm sitting there doing some radio work at the beach, and I'm kind of making some notes and – what, how many damn doubles did I miss? You know what I mean? <laughs> no. I mean, there, there's a guy second. I mean, because I turn away for a few moments and, and I would, you know, make a note or, and look back. It's gone second. It's like a double. And then it dawned on me after. I mean, it took me about two innings of that, maybe an inning of that. And I said, oh, okay, okay. I forgot they put a guy on second base to try and um, expedite the conclusion of the game. But so that um, was an odd game just because not it was only, a really good game though. It was I mean, on it was NBC, a really good game. which is weird that you know, NBC doesn't do a lot of major league started games. started at 11 and 11 or something, yeah, 11, 1130 11, in the morning. Yeah, 1130 was the start time of the game. So that was a little bit difficult to get used to and out of the ordinary, but yeah, you're right. It was a great game. And, and I, I say good games are great when you win them. Yeah. And, and two of the better teams in baseball, if you believe the record, I mean, we think the Braves are one of the better teams. We thought the game cards were. We think, we think the Orioles are one of the better teams. They've got almost a similar record out of the Braves. And um, so, yeah, a really, really, really good um, weekend series for Atlanta playing a really, I'll say really good team, but a good team in. Um, and another sports news real quick, um, Sam Ard. You know, we when we think of racing around here, you, you automatically think of Kale Yarbrough. I mean, he's been a hometown hero of mine for many, 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 many years. But Sam Ard has been a um, – I mean, I, I go back to the old days, and I'm talking about Thomas uh, Country Ham, and I'm telling my, oh, my wow. true roots here. Yeah, but this would have been in the old, old days. Is he any relation? Uh, yeah. Uh, we actually, in the, in the truck body manufacturing business, my brother and I sponsored Sam's son, Robert. This would have been 20 years ago. That's not quite 20 years ago. This would have been yeah, – I bet it has been. I bet it has been about 20 years ago. But um, And Sam's health had begun declining – and he wasn't able to do, but he'd tell those stories at the local diner down in Pamplico about, you know, the stories that include 
you know, Dale Earnhardt Sr. and Rusty Wallace and Bill Elliott and Mark Martin. And um, I mean, as an old school race fan, I was almost mesmerized. But yeah, there's a, um, I mean, it, it, we're, we're related, but it's not real close. I mean, it'd be like, you know, 13th cousins on your on your brother's side or something, <laughs> something like that. But Sam Mard named one of the 75 greatest NASCAR drivers. And it was pretty cool because once again, when you hear, you know, local race car driver, you automatically think of Kale Yarbrough, rightfully so. I mean, rightfully so, Kale's one of the um, the legendary drivers in the history of NASCAR. But Sam Ard, had he not been injured, many believe would have um, would have not eclipsed Kale's status, but would have absolutely been regarded as one of the all-time greats. And, and, and to see him recognized as one of the 75 greatest NASCAR drivers ever, quite the testament, quite the tribute, and, and really a, um, a tip of the hat to the old school racers, you know, when they, um, when they worked on cars, when they wore t-shirts and, um, you just hope you didn't catch you on fire. <laughs> what, what, what is flame retarded? I don't, I dump my t-shirt in that cooler back there and wet it down good in case this thing catches a fire. Catches you know? a fire. That's right. <laughs> With the way junior said it, in, this, in case this thing catches Great a fire, story. uh, we may play that story when, uh, it, this week in, in celebration of, um, I mean, Kale's not doing well. We talked a little bit about that several weeks back, Sam Ard, um, being named one of the 75 greatest drivers reminded me of, um, you know, of God kale and local racing. Darlington is this weekend, mm-hmm. uh, mother's day in Darlington. Uh, my wife is begging me to carry to the racetrack. I don't know if I can um, commit to that yet, but <laughs> I mean, I she's asked me, she asked me every second of it. Hey, is there any way we still spend mother's day at the racetrack? And I'm like, well, let me think about it. I mean, that, that's a hard call for me to make, but let me, let me think, please, let's go to the racetrack on, on Mother's Day. Um, I can say that at 610 because she's not up and about yet. <laughs> somebody on the phone? Yep. You let's got, go there. Yeah, Breeze. Good morning. Hey, guys. Uh, get on with kind of beef while I do that anyway. But, you know, when you, we were coming up, being a tattletale was something you didn't want to be called. And, uh, you know, of course, communist countries and uh, dictators, they count on that. And then, you know, during COVID, um, they were counting on that also. They wanted people to rat out their neighbor if they were after they saw a bunch of cars in the yard. And they did that over here, by the way. And then, you know, and then uh, in school, you know, the public schools, let's make something clear. A public school is a government school. The people that work there may be nice people, but basically they're a government school. And the government has an agenda. Do you remember when they used to tell you to uh, write out, the teacher would pick somebody out of the class? that they do would be a snitch and say, write down whoever is talking while I leave. you remember that? I do. Teaching you how the dog will rat out your neighbor, rat out your friends, rat out your brothers, your sister, your family. And I, now, I guess the question becomes, what are you supposed to rat out to the teacher about? I mean, what are you, at what point is a student or you as a citizen, if you see somebody digging in the yard at 3 in the morning, that should raise some curiosities. But what exactly are we supposed to tell the government um, on our neighbors, on our friends and all? I mean, because basically, when you're in school, you are in a government building, and it is run by the government. And also, what exactly is the student supposed to tell them about? Of course, if somebody has a gun, that makes sense. Now, at what point are you supposed to say something that somebody may be picking on you? I mean, do you want, if you were, like, if you or I were in school and somebody's giving us a hard time 
word got out that we went to the teacher and said, hey, that little, that uh, Johnny is bullying me. Well, then you and I, I would, I, 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 we'd be ruined. Could you like, would you, would you have told a teacher if somebody was being mean to you kids at Papago? No, I, I would have tried to figure out a way to handle it myself. Yeah, because you don't want to be damn kids to damn sissy. Kids, somebody, so kid, the first thing he does is goes and runs to Miss Smith and tells Miss Smith, and then next thing you know, he's over there in the principal saying that I'm, that I'm teasing him. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tough situation for these kids to be in. Now, just want to lay that out there, but that, then I got to thinking about something else over the weekend, so I will segue into this. I believe that DeSantis may not be everything we hoped he would be. Now, Trump is, we know that. And, you know, and, you know, at one point, you and I both were kind of saying, you know, I'm kind of leaning toward DeSantis right now over Trump. You know, I was at that point. You know, I was kind of leaning that way. But now you got to look at who is behind DeSantis. And that was one of the things I always look at with you know with the Democrats, what they who they're for or who or who's fooling for. But I see the people that wanted uh Joe Biden to be president, I knew that I couldn't be for Joe Biden or any, any of those other people. And I think that they're trying right now, I think that there are some very powerful people that we may or may not know about and people that are more powerful than them behind. I think they're gonna really try to push the Santas. And I believe that Nancy Bass, I think they realize, not Nancy Bass, this girl that used to be president, uh, but used to be governor, uh, Nikki Haley. I think that they're realizing that she is not capable of um, doing anything. So I think the only one that, that, uh, that the quote-unquote establishment Republicans and the very powerful people think can beat Trump is the Santas. So if a lot of people that you and I know not to be our friends start backing DeSantis and they start attacking Trump and not you wait, they'll attract they'll attack Trump good enough where even you and I will start questioning some, I'm thinking. You know what I mean? They they got some stuff. They they right now have got a plan. And it's not the Democrats but or Republicans, it's just a, like you call it the cathedral. But they will go after Trump really hard. And that makes me wonder if, even with all his flaws, is Trump really probably, is Trump, Trump, that that would have a need to be is Trump is our man. Because if they think that they can take DeSantis and say DeSantis, if he begins to wake he'll make you and I believe he is our guy. But it, but the reality is it'll be smoke and mirrors. I'm afraid that he will be getting controlled, being controlled by a part of the cathedral. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. But but let, let's let's uh, but let's go down this road for a second. This is kind of an interesting angle. There are some out there in Democrat land that believe the release of the ABC Washington Post poll yesterday that has Biden's approval rating at 36 percent. And guys, when a president's approval rating is 36%, the only way he wins is cheating. Now, now you know, ballot harvesting, private financing of campaign private financing of elections, there there is no law against private financing of campaigns. I mean, that would be contributions and donations. But when I saw that poll yesterday, I wondered what was the low point in Trump's approval ratings? 39-ish, so 38-ish. This- <laughs> 
Yeah. So Biden's is lower. Biden's is lower. Wow. I mean, it was a it was a catastrophic poll when you. But 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 here's what I think is happening, and I don't know this to be true, but but I think that the shoe is about to drop. I think Comer's got the goods on the Biden crime family, and the poll allows. In other words, let let's not rig the poll. I think ABC and Washington Post said, "Hey, we need a bad poll for Biden because it's it, it may be time to drop him. I mean, it, it may uh-huh. be really time, but." I mean, they, they, there are no secrets inside, inside the Beltway. I mean, Decker tells us what he wants us to know. Decker's not repeating some of the um, some of the uncertain things he hears in, in that media room. But there's chatter all about. I mean, the same thing in Columbia. I mean, Philip and Mike and Jay hear things that they're not going to repeat here because they don't have. I mean, so, you know, can you can you support that with, with corroborating evidence? I mean, I you know, um, but but. Once again, I'm speculating here. I don't have any evidence that shows that the case. If I'm not mistaken, Comer's calling for a press conference Wednesday or Thursday of this week. And and I think the bad poll dropped over the weekend to basically prepare the Democrats for the inevitability of an indicted Hunter Biden that 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 nasties up Joe Biden pretty significantly. Jim Biden, uh, you know these um these shell companies and and offshore bank accounts that all the Bidens have, I think it's coming to light now. You know what comes first, the chicken or the egg? You know is the poll leading the story or is the story leading leading the poll? I don't know. I mean, I you know I struggled yesterday trying to figure this out. Um, Trump and DeSantis both are up six in a hypothetical head-to-head between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But but the one thing we've got to remember, guys, this is not a conventional election. This is an election where, where in about five swing states, ballot harvesting has been normalized. Now, Georgia passes some legislation last week that bans the private financing of elections. So the Zuckerberg money will have to be under the table. Now, I mean, it'll still happen, but it can't happen above... Uh, above the table. I mean, it's got to be underhanded like it historically has been in Philadelphia and Maricopa County and some of these other places. But, but you know, what, what we've got to get to, and, and myself included, I've got to get to a place where DeSantis or Trump, does it matter if the Democrats are going to ballot harvest? I mean, it, it, if DeSantis is the nominee, but there is no ballot harvesting infrastructure, there is no um, you know, competing on a level playing field with the Democrats in the way we're conducting elections today, I, I don't know if any Republican can win. So, so that's kind of the, I mean, it's not a quandary. It's, it's a practicality that the Republicans find themselves in. And, um, and I thought about it yesterday when, when Stephanopoulos and Christie and Donna Brazile, I mean, she said she stayed up all night worrying about the poll. Something tells me, a hunch, nothing but a hunch, but something tells me that the Post and ABC News know what's about to happen with Hunter Biden. Now, the 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 media will try, excuse me, will try to argue this is about Biden and I mean the most serious charge Hunter Biden has, from what I've read over the weekend, in New York Times is this weapons charge. You know, lying on a lying on an application to obtain a gun. Um, I mean, that's a felony. Some of the tax charges are misdemeanors, not reporting income, and all these other sorts of things. But but it's not about Hunter Biden. I mean, it, a felony's a felony, but it's still not about Hunter Biden. I mean, how many of you are worried whether or not Hunter Biden lied on um, on a an application to to obtain a firearm? I mean, I'm not real worried about that. You may be. I'm not. 
I want to know how much of this money made its way to Joe Biden. I mean, that's always been my curiosity. Once again, I think Hunter Biden should follow the law like everybody else. And if he lied on an application to obtain a firearm, um, he should be charged with a felony and dealt accordingly. I don't know what the punishment is for somebody who does that, but he should be treated like anybody else that has ever, ever done that. But that's not what, what I'm interested in. And something tells me that the, the rumor mill inside the Beltway is suggesting strongly that there's more to this than that. And it's time to try to find, you know, a replacement. I mean, it's time to try and find, um, you know, a backup quarterback, so to speak. Now, to Breeze's point about DeSantis, let's also remember this about Ron DeSantis. Speaking of backup quarterbacks, who's always the most popular team on the, excuse me, the most popular player on the football team? It's always the backup quarterback. When your starter struggles, every fan, I'm drinking beer in the stand, says they need to put such and such in. He could do a better job. And then the back end, the backup quarterback comes in at the end of a game and looks like Joe Montana and, you know, John Elway combined. But he's playing in a, in a, in a kind of a mop-up role. And then the quarterback controversy ensues and begins. You know, I don't know if DeSantis is the backup quarterback or not. I mean, we've never seen him. Well, I mean, we've seen him under the fire at the state level. We've never seen him under the gun at the national level. But right now, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the numbers. Over the weekend, the ABC News Washington Post poll, Trump 45, Biden 39, DeSantis 44, Biden 38. So in both head-to-heads with Trump and DeSantis, it's the Republican plus six. I don't buy that. I, I just don't buy that. I mean, wh- where's the voting harvesting number? Where's the private financing of elections number? Where's the unsolicited mail-in ballot number? I bet they number? don't know how to poll well, I mean, You can't like that. poll that. That's why I'm not buying it. I just don't buy, and I don't care if it's Trump or DeSantis. So that may be public opinion. You buy that. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Biden's underwater. I mean, people know he's a dunce, and now they believe he's a dunce in serious cognitive decline. And it's beginning to really take its toll. And and when you see the majority of Democrats don't even want the guy to run again. But the Democrats are making a calculus. Can we run a dead man and win? Well, you did in Pennsylvania. I mean, can't can we run a man that just, you know, that can't coherently hold his thoughts together? You did in Fetterman in one. So the Democrats have this belief. They're not going to publicly. I mean, Stephanopoulos is not going to say, hey, Donna Brazil, how much does this poll take into account ballot harvesting or the private financing of elections or unsolicited mail-in ballots or the uh, the, the signature verification, you know, uh, tweak that we did? I mean, there's, of course, they're not going to ask that question. But, but I, I just don't buy this number. Now, now, what is encouraging to me is it's almost the same for Trump and DeSantis. So it looks like the Republicans have said, hey, I'd rather have this guy, but I'm okay with that guy. And the DeSantis cry, I'd rather have this guy, but I'm okay with that. That's where we've got to get. I mean, we, we as Republicans have to get to a place where either DeSantis or Trump is good enough. Now, now you know, some of the National Review, some of the weekly, well, weekly standards gone bust, some of the Wall Street Journal, you know, um, Tucker Carlson did a sit down on Will Kane's podcast, and I want to play about 10 minutes of it this morning in the seven o'clock hour. It is very, very revealing. It is prior to his getting fired, but he's still hosting the Fox show. So it's before um, that, you know, crap hit the fan. But but it, it's it's so enlightening about, you know, what this movement is about, um, what Tucker, I mean, it talks about his transformation, his um, his road to Damascus. Some believe it's phony. I think Tucker does a great job of it explaining. I mean, it really, I mean, when I say Tucker says things, wow, I wish I'd said it that way. I mean, he, he says things that I'm going like, yeah, that, that's exactly what I've tried to express. 
and explain for the last uh, since 16, maybe since 12 or 13. So for the last 10 years of, you know, me covering or understanding or trying to report on uh, politics, holding office and talking about those who hold office. Tucker does 10 minutes with Will Kane in, 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 a, in a very, I don't want to say profound. I mean, how profound can Tucker and Will Kane be? But it's very enlightening as to what Tucker saw, what he sees, and, and you know, the, the, the movement of which he's one of the leaders of and what he hopes to accomplish as one of the leaders of this, um, of this movement. First segment in the book. You ready, Josh? We good to go? We'll take a break. We'll be back oh, in just ouch. a few moments. What can you tell us about this latest investigation of influence peddling on a sitting president? I know that you're planning a press conference this Wednesday. What will we learn? Well, Senator Grassley and I uh, received uh, a, a tip uh, on a whistleblower. Senator Grassley was, was the lead in this. Uh, we reviewed documents uh, from the legally protected whistleblower, highly credible whistleblower uh, that would implicate Joe Biden in a pay-for-play scheme uh, in uh, uh, trying to uh, set up a deal to receive funds to he and his family uh, in exchange for foreign policy decisions. Now, that fits a pattern, Maria, of what we've seen with these bank records. And on Wednesday, we're going to present to the American people uh, all the information that we've received thus far pertaining to bank records. Uh, we're going to disclose many of the different LLCs, uh, many of the different... You get a bully ad on Monday <laughs> yeah. morning, don't you? Right in the middle of one of these. Can, Josh, leave it down because I want to go back and play a little more of this. I mean, we can't help this, guys. We don't run YouTube, but give me a second here. And um, this six minute, I have minute YouTube video. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. This um, six and a half minute bully ad. Right. Uh, let's see how long this takes. It's a, um, well, it's advertising the American uh, military. So, you know, uh, here we go. Let's go back, Josh. All you don't these mind. different Biden family members have gotten from our adversaries around the world. Now, we don't believe this was just a coincidence that all these Biden family members were receiving uh, money from these this web of LLCs into their personal bank accounts. We believe this was done in exchange for something that uh, then Vice President Biden and, and now President Biden uh, would have done. So uh, this whistleblower is going to provide some very crucial information to our investigation. And we've given the FBI until May the 10th to produce this document. So the ball is in the FBI's court with respect to this whistleblower. You you are sure that this document exists? 100%. What if they don't release the document by May 10th? What if they decide to indict Hunter Biden for having a gun illegally before your press conference? My message to the Department of Justice is very loud and clear. Do not indict Hunter Biden before Wednesday when you have the opportunity to see the evidence that the House Oversight Committee will produce with respect to the web of LLCs, with respect to the number of adversarial countries that this family influence peddled in. This is not just about the president's son. This is about the entire Biden family, including the president of the United States. So we believe there are a whole lot of accounts that the IRS and the DOJ don't know about because we don't believe they've done a whole lot of digging in this. And we have. Uh, we've spent the past hundred days pouring over bank documents. I've used subpoena power to get these bank documents. We've been meeting with uh, former associates 
of the Bidens in their different influence peddling schemes. We've been meeting with whistleblowers. We know exactly uh, what this family was doing. And by all accounts from the, the media reports that we're getting, what they're looking at charging Hunter Biden on is a, is a slap on the wrist. It's a drop in the bucket. So Wednesday will be a very big day uh, for the American people in getting the facts presented to them so that they can know the truth. And then the Department of Justice can finally do what they should have done years ago. What? Well, obviously, the president's sons committed many crimes, many crimes. I mean, you're, you're looking at potential money laundering. Jonathan Turley comes on Fox all the time and talks about uh, he was essentially a foreign agent for countries like China. Uh, he's an unregistered foreign agent. You know, those are serious crimes. You've got the possible racketeering. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And again, Maria, it's not just the president's son. And we don't believe these countries were paying the Biden family for nothing. We believe yeah. they were getting a return on their investment. And the return on the investment would have been policy decisions for then Vice President Joe Biden and current President Joe Biden. How much money do you believe the Biden family has taken in? How much money have you been able to identify of cash going to Biden family members? Well, we're going to dive into that on Wednesday, but it's uh, millions and millions of dollars. I can say that. Uh, hopefully people will pay attention on, on Wednesday when we have this press conference and they can see actual bank records. So, you know, Another thing that's important to note with this investigation, Maria, and I think will make it even more interesting on Wednesday, is more and more evidence is pointing towards Joe Biden. I mean, obviously, Joe Biden was was involved in all these things, despite the fact that he's lied to the American people, despite the fact that uh, his press secretary continues to lie about it. We've already produced one wire from one LLC uh, totaling over a million dollars to four different Biden family members. And now we're going to produce uh, an additional five Biden family members, more countries, more LLCs, more bank accounts. I mean, this thing is much bigger than anyone would have ever predicted. And it all points towards Joe Biden, the big guy. This is just you know, let's um, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. that, that's why I believe the poll was intentional. I mean, I, I think the cratering of Biden's numbers and support was a kind of a setup for what they believe is coming um, down the pike Wednesday. Now, here's what I predict will happen. I predict that Hunter Biden will be charged with a crime today or tomorrow. I mean, th- this Comer's talking about don't do anything until we provide this whistleblower's information, this paper trail, this um, this banking information of bank accounts and offshore accounts and shell companies, LLCs in the Biden family name. But the DOJ will probably instruct the FBI to indict Hunter Biden today or tomorrow for, you know, acquiring a firearm, What's lying the, on the application. Okay, that's interesting. What's the strategy now, now, once there? Once again, Rev, I don't have any in- I know. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is complete and total speculation. I mean, but, I just he, think I understand how the game is played. He said during that interview, you know, don't do it. And you're saying they probably will. I'm trying to figure out the, the legal strategies well, I mean, they, and, and political know, and PR strategies well, I mean, the, D, the DOJ is not a fair arbiter. I mean, they're a political operation. I mean, Merrick Garland is not a, 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 an honest broker. He's not. Um, let's give Mitch McConnell. I hardly give Mitch McConnell credit for anything, but he kept Merrick Garland off the Supreme Court. I mean, that, that's he a did. big deal. I mean, you know, we, we would have had a less conservative court today 
had Merrick Garland been owned. Um, I mean, I get the, um, you know, the smoke around Clarence Thomas and Alito. I get that. I understand that. I've said last week, let's explore that. I mean, let's find out if there's any malfeasance involved in that. But this is the story this week. And Comer is going to have um, kind of a, I don't want to say a tutorial, but it'll be somewhat of a PowerPoint presentation on what they found out. And once again, this will be news to most Americans because the media has refused to report on this. But, but I believe the ABC Washington Post poll is based on the, the information that the Comer camp have that has not been disclosed yet to the public. Um, if Comer's got it, there are members, there are Democrat members of the Oversight Committee who have it as well. So I believe dem- the Democrats on the Oversight Committee have probably gone to their friendlies at ABC News and the Washington Post and out of that came a bad poll for Biden. It gives a reason to kick the old man to the curb. I mean, once again, I have no, there is no corroborating information. This is totally and 100% my opinion. Nothing more than my opinion. But when I saw the poll and how emphatic ABC News was, and Donna Brazile says she stays up at night worrying about this, that there's kind of a circling of the wagons. They see what's coming their way, and it ain't pretty. They would have never made as big a deal about a poll that had Joe Biden at 36% if they didn't believe the bigger story what was, you know, these um, these canceled checks and these banking records. So, so it's, um, I mean, they're playing chess. How many times do we say you can't play checkers and win at that level? you got to be able to play chess. And I think part of the chess is the poll. Because once again, ABC News made a big deal out of the poll. The Washington Post made a big deal out of the poll. If the Washington Post and ABC News had a poll that had Biden at 36%, you'd have to dig through the paper to find it. You'd have to scour the countryside at ABC News to find it. But they made it one of the central themes of yesterday's news coverage because they know Comer's coming with some goods Wednesday. And once again, I think indicting Hunter Biden today or tomorrow on some sort of weapons charge, and that's the most serious charge. In other words, you got some misdemeanor tax charges, you got the weapons charge of acquiring a firearm, lying on the application to require a fire or to acquire a firearm. I mean, that's a felony. So the DOJ can say, hey, we don't care if it's the president's son or not. I mean, we're in the business of applying justice equally and fairly in the name of the law. I, I, once again, I don't think the public will buy it. I mean, some will, but the majority of us won't. I just think that's what will happen today, tomorrow, or Wednesday. Could be wrong. Been wrong a lot in my life. But it looks to me like Comer's forcing the Democrats' hand and, and if Comer's got the information as chairman of the Oversight Committee, there's a ranking member on that committee that has had the same availability of information as Comer has, and they're the ones probably leaking this to the ABC News desk, the Washington Post bureau chief, um, whomever their friendlies are, and, um, you know, their fellow cathedralist. So whoever is the member of the cathedral that can best serve them is what I say, um, kind of what hit it. Now, you know, where does it go from there? Don't know. Don't have any idea. Um, the FBI and DOJ still have to investigate. I mean, Comer's an oversight committee, uh, and he's an investigatory committee, but he has no ability to arrest. He has no ability to indict. I mean, he can provide all the information. I mean, he can lay the kind of the paper trail of the banking records, and all I've ever asked anybody, and I've never gotten an answer, Someone explained to me how the Bidens got wealthy. I mean, if not peddling influence, if not transacting in the name of our federal government, somebody explained to me, and I mean this seriously, 
Somebody explain to me how the Bidens got wealthy. Hunter Biden's a wealthy man. Jim Biden's a wealthy man. Joe Biden's a wealthy man. How did they get wealthy? I mean, I think that is the most, it's almost like, what is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth? <laughs> I mean, let's start there. But maybe they're the best car salesman in the history of mankind. Maybe they speculated on real estate. You know, maybe they're Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger incarnate. I mean, I don't know. But, but all the Bidens got wealthy. How did they get wealthy? Uh, they were going to find out Wednesday that they peddle influence. Um, they've, they've been paid to do things in the name of your and my federal government. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Okay, I'm somewhat awake now. I'm, I'm in gear. I'm ready to go. I feel like I, I shorted you the first hour. Um, I mean, th- these are ramblings and musings that I have, but I feel like I can focus now. Okay, what has changed? Well, I mean, remember, well, I mean, we're an hour into the week. Okay. Re- remember when uh, last week we talked about this pyramid and at the top of the pyramid, who is that? And we kind of concluded it's the 2,700 people from the 130 countries who go to Davos, Davos. for the World Economic yep. Forum, and they, you know, they're the puppet masters. Um, you know, they're the godfathers of politics and and economic policy, and we all operate in the realm of um, we all operate in the wake of what they decide to do. Um, what is the macro issue? You got this pyramid, and you got education, and you got infrastructure, and you got crime, and you got you know um, Senate's leniency, Jim. You got some other things down there percolating and brewing around and then the middle of the pyramid you've got taxation and corporate governance policy and at the tip of the pyramid is kind of the macro of all macros so so when 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 people who run the world and and the 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 pinnacle of that is the davos man um females that's figuratively not literally there are women there as well um so, so of the issues of the 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 themes of politics, what matters most? Well, to me, it's. I mean, it's hard to. Uh, how many times have I said this? Man, it's as clear as it can be in my head, but I'm not sure I get it out as clearly and articulately as um as I know. In other words, if I could say what's in my head, it would be perfectly understood, but I can't because it's so confusing. It's so um, elaborate. It's so ah, nonspecific, that it, it's hard to really couch in a, in a bumper sticker or a, or a talking point. Tucker appeared on the Will Kane podcast, and the most interesting question I've ever heard Tucker answer was Will Kane asking, when did you change? What happened to you? And I mean, I can so relate to this. Now, I'm not Tucker. I didn't host a, you know, an eight o'clock primetime television show with what, three to five million people a night. I don't have a resume or a body of work at the National Review and the Weekly Standard and the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute. I mean, I'm not uh, uh, an intellectual conservative by any stretch of the imagination. But when I got in politics, I fell for a lot of the same antics. I took the bait on a lot of same fronts. So, so when I think of where we are in American politics today, to me, the overriding sentiment, and, and Tucker says it, and I'll let him say it in two seconds, but the overriding sentiment is the people running the joint just ain't real good at it. I mean, they're, they're just not real good at that. Now, he takes 10 minutes to get there, but I want to play, because I think a lot of you can relate to this, 
And it's good to hear his voice again. I mean, it's real good to hear Tucker's voice again. Here's Tucker, I think a week or two before he's let go at Fox News on the Will Kane podcast. I have to sit down with you and talk to you. I've never really had a chance to get to know you. So I'm really excited to spend, I don't know, 40 minutes together. And I think ask you all the things that everybody wants to ask you. <laughs> like, why don't you go away? <laughs> Close. Uh, instead, I'm going to ask you, I want to start with this. I want to ask you a question that I think almost every one of your haters and every one of your critics would like to ask. And I think, interestingly, a great amount of your fans would actually like to ask as well. And that is this. What happened to you? Well, I got to be 53 and I just, uh, you know, I've been in this business my whole life and um I have a very clear memory of the country that I grew up in, and I really liked it. I've, you know, I always liked the United States, and I watched it change, and I watched in those changes a lot of my preconceptions get debunked. And, um, and so I changed my opinions along with the changing evidence, which I, I thought was what you're, you're supposed to do. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not in... I am embarrassed about how wrong I was about a number of different things, but I'm certainly not embarrassed to have changed my mind. What would be embarrassing is if in the face of a mountain of evidence that you were wrong, you know, you resisted admitting it and changing course. So for me, the Iraq war was definitely a pivot point. I was in television then that was 19 years ago. And, um, I was cheering it on basically. In effect, I, I actually had reservations. The worst part, in fact, is that I had gut-level reservations. I never understood the connection between Saddam Hussein and 9-11. I assumed that the CIA and the various intel agencies of other countries, our allies, Great Britain, France, were correct in saying that Saddam had WMD, but I never exactly understood why, why it would be a good idea to invade Iraq, but... I effectively, passively went along with it, and then I went to Iraq in December of 2003, the day, in fact, Saddam was captured into Crete, and I watched the place fall apart, and along with it, a lot of my previous assumptions. And I came back, and I admitted I was completely wrong. I'm ashamed. I've been ashamed ever since. And what was so striking about that whole process was how few people were willing to say the same thing. They were like, no, it's a good idea. In the in the face of really overwhelming evidence that the United States got nothing out of it. And uh, after that, I just thought, you know, I don't know what this is, but I'm I'm against it. You know, I don't think you should lie. I think it's okay to be wrong, but you should never intentionally lie. And I watched people like David Frum and Bill Crystal, people I worked with and respected who were very smart, for sure, both of them, decide to say things they knew weren't true for whatever reason, I can't guess at their motive, and I was—I found it repulsive, and I still do. So that was really the beginning of my break with the conventional view of things. You know, and giving someone a compliment is always in a dangerous proposition because probably more often than not, compliments are meant for some other purpose. To <laughs> That's for sure. Make that beware flattery, to, definitely. 
Exactly. To make that person like you, whatever it may be. But I'm going to give you a compliment that I think is totally devoid of any, certainly any ulterior motive and, and honestly also devoid of emotion. You know, I, I said this. I think I'd like to be able to step outside myself and observe myself somewhat objectively, if not objectively self-aware and, and say, look, I was at ESPN. I had not yet joined Fox and I was asked, you know, who would you like to have dinner with? Name your three people. And, and you were one of the three people. And the reason for that, Tucker, has to do with whatever this transformation is that you've gone through over some period of time. You just described a much longer period of time than the one that I've observed. Of course, I've known who you are for a long time. But your transition, here's the compliment, I think, obviously led the country, led a lot of people. And I would say, in a lot of ways, led me in seeing America through what I think is a more populist lens. I would have probably 10 years ago, Tucker, really recoiled at the idea of populism. Yes, I would have associated it with mob mentality. But listening to you when I wasn't yet at Fox, and you're not the only person, but you are one of the primary people who helped guide, I think, me in a different direction than I was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe even five years ago. But I'm curious... Where would you say you are today? Like, if you had to put a name or a brand on it, you just described a Tucker that was probably pretty neoconservative at one time. I know right. you were pretty libertarian at one point. What are you now? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I no one would ever believe me since, you know, I think a conventional view is I'm, I'm radical, but I feel and have always felt very moderate. I'm definitely not in favor of destroying things. I, I really see the world as, a, as binary at this point. There are people who create, and nurture, and they're those who deface and destroy. It's it's really there are only two varieties of people. It's it's dualism, and I want to be on the side that creates and nurtures, that makes things, that improves things, that leaves things for future generations. That sounds high minded, but I, I really believe it. And so I don't like any political movement that begins with, "Hey, let's wreck everything we have and build something brand new," because. I just don't believe in that. It doesn't actually work. I like to read. I'm interested in history. Virtually every revolution, with the exception really of ours, has taken the society uh, backward. You know, whatever society is, whether it's France or Great, or in the Soviet Union, Russia in 1917, China in 1949, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I I feel very moderate. And by the way, I'm not much of a populist either. I mean, I, people are hierarchical. I have four dogs. I know animals are hierarchical. It's just built into our nature. You know, we have a small number of leaders. We look to them for direction. That's not weird. That's just how we're born. So you're always going to have a ruling class. The question is, is it an impressive ruling class? Are they smart people? Do they have self-restraint? Do they have wisdom? Are they thinking past, you know, the next 20 days or are they greedy day traders and we just have wound up for a bunch of different reasons with a really bad ruling class i'm not against ruling classes at all everybody every society has one but ours are just unimaginably bad and i think that we should be asking how did the system that we built up over generations create these people you know where you graduate yale law school or go on to mckinsey and then you wind up with attitudes that hurt the country you're supposed to be leading. Like, how did that happen? No one else seems to be interested. I'm very interested. I mean, I grew up in La Jolla and Georgetown. So it's not like 
I'm the son of a coal miner. I grew up in a world full of rich, well-educated people. I left that world a few years ago on purpose because I could no longer stand it. But it's not because, you know, I'm like in my heart a farmer. No, in my heart, I'm a, you know, I grew up a rich kid and I read books and I'm not, I, I just don't like the people currently in charge. I think they're awful. I think they're absolutely awful. And I know them. So I would know. I spent 35 years in Washington from 1985 to 2020. So I, I'm not kind of guessing about what they're like. I know them personally. And they couldn't be less suited to leadership. And I'm just mad about it. I mean, why wouldn't I be mad about it? Look at the effects. And I would say one other thing, as for populism, my views are very simple. All my views are simple. I don't have complicated views really about anything. But if you're running a country that purports to be a representative democracy, you should serve the majority of people. I mean, in some way, if you wake up one morning, the life expectancy is declining, you've really gone off track. You know, if people aren't replacing the population through native-born birth rates, that's a red flag. That's a siren. That's an emergency. And if you ignore it, then you suck and you deserve to be replaced. That's, that's kind of how I feel. It's not more complicated than that. It's so interesting you describe some of your background that you're from La Jolla. So, you know, a lot of people, I think, again, probably best voiced by your critics say, okay, how did this guy become the voice of the forgotten man? How did this guy become the voice of populism? And what I hear you telling me is the way that you have, not by calculation, not by any, and that's what you will be accused of. By the way, I feel like I get a lot of the same criticism just in small yes. doses compared to the heaping doses that you get. But what, what you're saying is that you arrive at this place because you have inside knowledge, in essence, of those that would be the ruling class and know how feckless and empty and incompetent that class right. is right that's and that's it i mean dishonest people always impute dishonest motives to other people it's like philanderers always assume everyone else is cheating on his wife that's just the way they are you know i've got a lot of faults i'm not that dishonest actually and i just kind of say what i think why wouldn't i i'm 53 there's no advantage in lying i don't if i can help it i mean i guess if you caught me doing something bad i would lie about it but in general i try not to lie my motives are super straightforward, and I don't hear much criticism about myself because I'm pretty cut off, but to the extent I hear it, it's like, oh, no, he's doing this for money. No, <laughs> I've never been a money guy, you know, at all. I mean, I remember my producer telling me last summer I was out west fishing, and he's like, there are all these stories about how you're secretly vaxxed, and you're casting aspersions on the COVID vaccine because you don't want your audience to get the vaccine or whatever. Mm -hmm. I said, why would people assume if I'm worried about the vaccine that I was secretly, va I'm not vaxxed, I never have been vaxxed. I'm not mad at people who have been vaxxed, but like the idea that I would lie about, why would I lie about that? I would never lie about that. It only liars imagine everyone else is lying. And it really does tell you a lot about the people making those criticisms. I mean, my faults and shortcomings and weaknesses are super obvious. I'm on TV five hours a week. So if I, you know, have dumb opinions or, you know, if I eat too many cookies and gain 30 pounds, which I tend to do, um, everyone knows. Like, I'm not hiding anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why would I? I don't. And so the idea that, like, I'm some trust fund kid who decided that he could make more money pretending to be a car mechanic or something, it's like, it's insane. I, I didn't grow up in rural middle America. I never pretended I did. I just think 
the, it's really this simple. I actually like rural areas because I hunt and fish and I like the people. I live in one. But, but really, it's as simple as the people in charge are bad at their jobs. That's demonstrable. We know that from the results. I'm not just attacking people's characters or saying I don't like having dinner with them. I'm saying they're not good at what they do. And by every measure, and they shouldn't be in charge. It's, it's really that simple. I'm not saying that we should like turn out the entire federal bureaucracy and give it to people who work at Napa Auto Parts. I don't know. I, but people who are good at leading the country should be leading the country. We don't have those people. So that's a huge problem. Um, let, let, let's stop there for a second. That That's kind of an interesting, I mean, in essence, what he's saying, guys, I mean, it's, the people in charge are just not good at the job. And and it's a lot different. The, the, the person in charge, the concession stand, uh, the Tiger, a Gamecock, I mean, it sucks that day for that moment. But when a class of people are not good at their job and their job is to run the largest country in the history of mankind, I mean, th- th- there's some not so subtle results right, there. There's consequences. You, you better believe it. And he, he said the begin- I mean, at the end of there when he said, "Look, I'm not saying turn it over to to the people running the Apple Auto Store. I don't know who needs to run the country, but it isn't the people we have running it today. I mean, they're demonstrably. I mean, that that was his word. Over, they're they're just bad at their job. And and it kind of a lot came on. All these times I've tried to explain what what's in this you know busy head of mine. That's it. I mean, in essence, I'm not angry. I mean, I guess I sound angry, and I do get very frustrated, and, and I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. But but that's, I mean, Tucker encapsulated pretty much the way I feel. And and then once again, it's not an anger. It's not a fear. It's a frustration without question that the people that are in charge of government are just not very good at their job. Are they smart? Are they educated? Or are they good and decent? I mean, Tucker thinks they aren't to some degree. Uh, he thinks they're very self-serving. I think his words were, you know, they're day traders. You know, they, they don't think about what, what, what the consequences are more than 20 minutes um, down the road. But it was a revelation to me. I actually played that. Somebody sent it to me and said, hey, man, I've listened to you for 10 years. And this is kind of sort of what I think you're trying to say. Now, there, there's a reason Tucker makes $5 million a year, and I don't. You know, I mean, he's as good as there is at articulating a worldview. You know, the one thing he does have that I don't, I mean, I'm not a convert. I mean, I am that guy that came from, you know, I mean, I spent three days a week in an app auto store getting truck parts. I mean, Tucker readily admits he's a rich kid. I mean, he grew up in Georgetown and La Jolla. I mean, he, you know, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have a burning desire to be a farmer. You know, I mean, I think he says he says that. But in essence, that's the theme of where we but are today. there's also a reason he's not on the air anymore. Of course. I mean, it's, it's um. You know, he he crossed the bridge, so to speak, to the other side and became one of us. And I guess the power brokers at Fox, at, you know, at all the major media outlets, I mean, he's a threat. He's a danger. But that's the pinnacle. I mean, when we talk about, you know, the, um, the people that run the world and who they are, and we've concluded it's the 2,700 people from 130 countries who go to Davos and kind of, you know, execute policy and mon- I mean, economic policy and monetary policy and, and political policy, you know, all of that. And, and out of that comes, um, you know, a shaking of the hand and agreement that, hey, here's how the world, here's the way the world's going to work. When you, when you look at the theme or issue in America today that I think is transforming American politics in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime, I mean, that's it. It's, you know, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of our callers and who they are and how many times they called and expressed an opinion. The, the the underlying sentiment of the majority of our listeners and our callers are, 
you know, I don't know that I need to be in charge of the country, but the people who are suck at their jobs. I mean, they're really bad at their jobs. And in essence, I think this radio show and Fox News and, and some of the other media outlets allow people a, an opportunity to express the discontent we have for those in charge, why they're in charge, and how the hell do we replace them with more competent, more dedicated, more, more patriotic, uh, uh, more selfless, uh, more genuine, more caring, more, more, you see where I'm headed? More altruistic. I mean, there, there's, I mean, it's not public service. Stop calling it that. I mean, it, it's self-advantaged politics. I mean, we've got a president now. We, we had a president before and before him and before him. I mean, what, how, how lucrative is it to be in public service? It's unbelievably lucrative. But, but these folks are just not very good at their job, and the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. The country's in decline. Why is the country in decline? Because the people running the country just aren't very good at running a country. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Good to hear Tucker's voice. It was. Back on the airways. And um, and just kind of, I'll place a little more. It's about 60, that's 56 minutes and 45 seconds. We played 12 minutes and 14 um, seconds. We'll play a little more of that um, intermittently throughout the ballots and, and, the I, show. and I learned there that he says he lives in a rural area and I'd heard that he'd moved out of uh, Washington recently I guess back in 2020 um so but they they maintained a set wherever he is so I you couldn't really tell it on well, TV. I mean, and if you listen to him he admits that um I mean he, he didn't learn this boots on the ground I mean th- th- this being somewhat of a spokesperson for the forgotten man is not something that he pursued I mean, he's La Jolla, he's Georgetown, he's a rich kid, he reads books, I mean, he does things, you know, like he said, I don't, I mean, I'm not a farmer, and I don't know if we should give the keys to the government back to the, the guys that work at Napa Auto Parts, no insult to Napa Auto Parts, but but something's not working, something's amiss, I mean, this nation's in decline, and you know whose fault it's not? It's not the farmer's fault, it's not the person working at Napa Auto Parts' fault, I mean, it's the people we've entrusted to run these high-level government agencies because they went to Yale, because they went to Harvard, because they went to Stanford, because they went to Duke. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I, it, it's either a meritocracy or it's not. And, and right now, I think what Tucker's saying is, you know, the pedigreed class like me have been entitled to a lot of opportunities that maybe we don't deserve. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hey, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm speaking as a poor kid who's literally been a ditch digger at uh, at uh, one time many years ago. But uh, I think uh, Tucker is, is uh, despite his love of P.G. Wodehouse or Woodhouse, as he pronounces it, uh, I think he's demonstrably wrong about uh, Napa Auto Parts uh, personnel because I think they would do a – in fact, I'm just about certain they would do a better job because just 50% of the time they they would hit the mark just out of random chance. And these guys are – what did you say? Uh, I'd just say heck bent on running this whole ship aground at every level they can, whether it's uh, it's uh, culturally or economically or militarily, they just want to screw it up. And Trump's absolutely right. We got uh, idiots in charge of our military wasting the steam that's been 
bought with American blood, and people have given their lives and their bodies to establish the American reputation of the military, and uh, Biden comes up there and just squanders it. And the, but uh, I I really do think uh, Napa Auto Parts personnel are way superior to the people that are up there leading the country right now. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, what I'm trying to illustrate, you've got this, you've got this pyramid to my left, and we decided last week collectively, I think, that at the pinnacle of the pyramid, at the tip of the pyramid, is the Davos class. I mean, the question was kind of who runs the world. And I mean, is it exactly those twenty seven hundred people? And who, exactly who decided they those hundred and thirty countries? Well, I mean, by the way, the self appointed masters of the universe. Yeah. And um, and and then you know, this week we got this other pyramid. And what is the issue of all issues? I mean, you know, we we've got all this political discontent. We had Trump president. Um, many think Trump got jobbed in the second election. Why did Donald Trump get elected president? I mean, it, 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 really, that's kind of the question we're asking ourselves. How in the world did that happen? Well, I mean, if you if you dig a little, I mean, I think the underlying sentiment is, and if you kind of walk up the side of the pyramid, okay, uh, we're near the top, but this guy named Donald Trump gets elected. But I mean, that's a pretty consequential moment in American history when somebody like that beats a star-studded cast of contenders in the Republican primary, and I mean, he just wipes the slate clean, wins by a landslide, and and then you get to the very top of Mount Everest, the pyramid. You look out and you say, okay, where am I standing? And I think you're standing on the ground where people believe those in charge of the government suck at their job. And and I think Trump is a manifestation of us believing that those people who are entrusted to run all these government agencies, make all these big decisions that all of us have to live by, they're just not very good at what they do. Now, now we could go down another, why aren't they good at what they do? I mean, how do these people end up with these all-important and critical jobs? I mean, I've got a theory. I mean, I think the founder of the business is probably a good business guy. But the heir apparent, you know, the, the, the kid of the founder, and then the grandkid of the founder, and then the great-grandkid of the founder. I mean, we know the generational consequences of business ownership, right? I mean, I've, all, I've often said, you know, somebody builds the business, and then four generations down the road, um, the kid or the great-grandkid wrecks the Corvette in the pool at the Ritz-Carlton. And, and I think that's where we are. You know, I think the people that ran government agencies to begin with probably were competent, diligent, altruistic, patriotic, um, respectful of the country they were in charge of. And then it gets watered down a little bit and diluted a little bit more. And uh, there's a little bit more of a pay raise in here for me. You know, I, we're going in debt, but I don't care. I mean, I got these benefits. You know, I got this um, this severance package. I've got, you know, the corporate world has golden parachutes. Why shouldn't um, the government have some of those as well? And we've seen a big increase in salaries of government workers. I mean, I, it, 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 I'm not saying it's an epidemic, but I do believe that, you know, the, the government is unaccountable. And I think America's in decline because the government has become unbelievably unaccountable. Let's go to the phone. Larry and the PD, good morning. Hey, I think you're. I think you're close, but I was just kind of putting a couple of things that you were saying together. And so you've got these these twenty seven hundred odd whatever people at the top. They're highly competent, and then you've got this group of people that they they basically maneuver into these positions where they need them in influence in the government and other places, and they're highly incompetent. 
And you have to believe that part of that is being done on purpose. I don't think that it is just a gradual decline that we see over time. I think that, and, and you know, the term like, you know, dark forces, that might not be the right way to go, but, but it is certainly a trend, and a trend kind of is a force. The trend is that it seems like these people at the top are much more comfortable not having people immediately beneath them that, that are competent. In other words, they, they, these people, if they, you know, like a Donald Trump, could inadvertently begin to, to provide oversight to the people that they're supposed to be subservient to. And I don't think that group of people is comfortable with that anymore. You know, every now and then one of these really high and mighty people used to get, get knocked off their perch, but that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, every now and then the, the wrong the wrong government agency would stumble up on, you know, the IRS would stumble up on somebody doing something they weren't supposed to be doing, and they would mess up and actually prosecute it. And, and I just think they've gotten less and less comfortable with that possibility. And those, that group at the top are only interested in themselves. But every now and then, somebody underneath them would get interested in somebody besides themselves you know, they would buy the notion that they were a public servant. They would believe the hype that they were there to protect and preserve. And I just think they got uncomfortable with that. So they made the changes in academe. They made the changes culturally that they needed to change to ensure that that group of people would not get into power. And I think that's what you've got. And I think these people aren't good at their jobs, but I don't think they know it. But I think the people above them know it, and I think they're glad about it. That's what I think we're we're witnessing right now. That's a hell of a problem. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. See, I mean that that's a, that's a, an interesting diagnosis. I mean, I don't disagree with with much of what he said. You know, I will say this: that at Davos, I mean, you've got governmental leaders, of course. I um, mean, you've got you know climate czars like John Kerry who go there. But the majority of force du jour at Davos is economic interest. You know, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, is there. Um, Larry Fink has no obligation whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned, to be altruistic, to be sincerely motivated and interesting, uh, interested by the plight of the common man. I mean, when BlackRock makes its corporate decisions, BlackRock doesn't have to care at all about where the common man or woman are in America. I think a public servant must. I think it has to be required of someone in Congress to consider the interest uh, of, of where its people are. I mean, you know, when Congress passes a law or, 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 or you know, uh, votes on a, on a bill, I think they have to, to some degree, consider the, the, the priorities of the people. I mean, I know it's always juxtaposed with moneyed interest. I get that. I mean, I accept that. I've been there, done that. I mean, I understand voting in the interest of, you know, corporate America, voting in the interest of the betterment of mankind or the betterment of the American people. So, so when, and, and this gets real confusing. So you've got Larry Fink, a very powerful business leader. I mean, he's CEO of BlackRock. They have trillions of dollars that they invest and manage. And then you've got, uh, you got, you know, Mitch McConnell. McConnell's got to be motivated by something different than Fink, right? I mean, am I right? But, but, but I guess, I mean, it, it would be my assertion that if you, I mean, you've seen the Frankenstein machines where they hook the wires up everywhere. I think if you hooked Larry Fink up to that machine and you hooked Mitch McConnell up to that machine, I would argue Fink's probably devoting as much energy to the common good as as McConnell does. And, and I think McConnell has an obligation 
via being a public servant to consider how does this affect mankind? How does this affect the American people? I don't think Larry Fink has to do that. I mean, I'd like to believe that Fink thinks that way. I mean, I'd like to believe that Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan says, hey, this makes us a lot more money, but it puts a lot of people in the streets. And, I mean, I think they're, they're you know, I mean, I, the morality of business, I think, has to be there. I mean, I think the ethics of business has to be there. I think there has to be some consideration of the common good, but I think it's optional. I don't know how I get angry with BlackRock if they make a decision based on money and money alone, power and power alone, prestige and prestige alone. I think I have every right to be frustrated with Mitch McConnell when he makes a decision motivated by exactly the same things that Larry Fink is motivated by, and I think that's where we are. I think the majority of decisions that McConnell makes are just like the ones that Fink makes. What is in my best interest? What is in my donor's best interest? I mean, the, the guy working in Napa will fend for himself. The farmer will fend for himself. I mean, every now and then, we make a call that advantages them. Sometimes we make a call that disadvantages them. And Tucker's not saying that, but that's what I'm saying, that you've got two powerful people. One's in the business world. It overlaps the, you know, the policy world. One's in the policy world. It obviously overlaps the business world. I don't think Fink has any obligation at all to consider morality or ethics. I mean, I think he probably does to some degree, but I think McConnell has to consider being a public representative. What, what, what is my job balancing what is in BlackRock or Vanguard's best interest, but does it put farmers out of work? Does it put, you know, d does it harm or disadvantage the American working class? I mean, that, that, that's complicated. That gets extremely complicated. But I do look at those two people and the decisions they make in different lights. If, if McConnell's doing the job of a U.S. senator in the best interest of the American people, I, I don't think America's in decline. And I think Larry's right. I mean, a lot of these, uh, you know, we're talking about incompetency and, you know, meritocracies and all these other. I mean, I think Larry Fink is very diligent. I mean, probably unbelievably competent. Mitch McConnell is probably a very bright man, unbelievably strategic in the way he goes about doing his job. But what is he motivated by? I mean, does he have a blind law? If you sat down with McConnell and say, hey, Mitch, do you think for the last 30 years you've done right by the American people? And he says, yes. And you say, explain. I mean, I'd love to have that question asked of someone like Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi or Mitt Romney. You know, one of these career public servants, quote unquote. I mean, what has motivated you? I think Larry Fink is very, um, very willing and able to say profit, profit. I mean, that, that's what I'm paid to do, make BlackRock as much money as I possibly can. And if that, may, if that means hiring another lobbyist, that's what we do. If it means, you know, giving more money to candidates for office, that's what we do. But what is the obligation of the person taking money from BlackRock in contrast with the American people? I mean, that, that, Tucker's not saying that. That's me kind of going there. But that's why I believe America's in decline. I think it's public servants have behaved kind of like corporate CEOs by, you know, taking care of the moneyed interest, uh, the donor class, instead of, you know, we, the people. Yeah, they seem to forget the important part is the only reason they have their job is because the voters voted them into the office. Well, I mean, I forget or just don't care. I mean, it, <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, I, I'm serious. I mean, you know, do they care that they are to be held accountable to we, 
the people. Uh, it's pretty obvious some don't. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go back to this. Let's go back to. Um, I mean, we, we've established. Now let me back up. We ain't established Jack. Uh, we're speculating that the the Davos class, <laughs> excuse me, are the men and women who run the world. I mean, I'm being very generic, but in, in, in generalities, that's what we're we're talking about. We're, we're speculating. I, I'm 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 arguing that the macro issue in politics today is this populism. <coughs> excuse me. This this um this Donald Trump getting elected as a former. New York City real estate, he's still the New York City real estate developer, but, you know, turned politician, um, ran as a, I mean, some would say phony populist, but populism. I think Tucker's interesting when Tucker said, I've never considered myself much of a populist because populists are kind of like tear things apart, you know, tear it apart. We'll build back whatever we can, um, indeed build back. But I think Will Kane does a good job of expressing himself and then allowing Tucker um, to do the same. Uh, Josh, let's go back to, um, we listened about 12 minutes. I don't want to listen to 56 minutes, obviously, but let's listen to a few minutes here. Place. Yes. And, and, you know, by the way, I arrive at this point of embracing a sense of populism more by aspiring to, I aspired to achieve away from my upbringing, as a lot of small town yes. kids do. I want to make my way to the big city. And what I found, Tucker, once I made it, in this case, whether it was New York City or corporate America of ESPN, what I just found once I got there was these were not more sophisticated individuals interested in high-level debates. These were not people that somehow had any semblance of value. In fact, they had much less a semblance of value than the places and the people where I came from. And there is something about where I came from that is deeply in touch with what it is to be an American, what it is to be a valuable member of society. And not only have that person been forgotten, not only is that person the forgotten man, but that person is reviled in, in yes. what is esteemed and held up as, as virtue now is the opposite of what I at least grew up and what I've always honored as being what it is to be a man or an American or to be a Christian or to just be an honorable contributing member of society. Once I got to the Upper West Side, I was disavowed of, of any course, of that of and course. ready to go back of to course. Sherman, Texas. It's totally right. I mean, it's totally right. I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right that the people in charge hate middle America. And you have to ask yourself why. And the answer is that they failed middle America. They failed middle class America, which is no longer the majority of the country. That's, the, you know, this happened in, I think, 2015 during the Obama presidency when the middle class became less than the majority of America. So it's no longer a middle class country. That's a huge problem. And they did that by their bad policies, a bunch of them. I mean, I'm not, you know what they are. I'm not going to bore you. But um, and it, the truth is you hate the people you wrong. If you commit an a, a an offense against someone, if you sin against someone, you end up hating that person. And that's that's really why. And so they invert it all. I mean, the most, of course, the most powerless and reviled people in America are rural people. Obviously, there's no, you know, they can't get into Stanford, no matter what their SAT scores are. No one is putting the thumb on the scale for them. But you watch television and they tell you, oh, you know, the most, you know, underserved, I, you know, the most marginalized communities are, trans people in cities really there's no more privileged group than a trans person in the city they're like 
you know, one hundredth of one percent of the population, we spend 30 percent of our time talking about them. There is, you know, every possible the Justice Department, you criticize them and they're like at your door with guns. It's like everything that they describe is the opposite of the reality the rest of us live with. And at a certain point, you just completely devalue your credibility. And I don't believe anything you say because everything you say is a freaking lie. Not only a lie, it's an inversion of the truth. It's the precise opposite of the truth. Let's let's hold on to that for a second, Josh. So so Tucker's making the argument, along with Will Cain, that and I've never thought of this. So why do why does the ruling class despise the Trump voter. I mean, we know they do. I mean, I'm talking about every Trump voter. I know there are doctors who voted for Trump. There are, there are successful business leaders who voted for Trump. There are intelligent women and men who voted for Trump. But the generic makeup of the Trump voter via the media narrative is a, kind of a NASCAR-watching, country music listening. Remember the smell them at Walmart Yeah, you comments. smell them at Walmart. I mean, they probably go to Walmart and buy their groceries because they can save, you know, 40 cents on a box of cereal and, and Pop-Tarts. And, you know, I mean, you see where I'm headed. But but think of this, guys. If you are, and this may be in the subconscious. I mean, I may be going down the rabbit hole here for a second. But in the subconscious, if you believe that you are responsible for the despair of the American middle class, the despair of the low-income, low-information um, voter, wouldn't you revile those people? In other words, they, they believe you're the problem. So, so the counter, I don't know, the counter to that would be arguing that they're the problem. And and I think Tucker, I mean, I think I think Kane probably makes a better point there than Tucker does. Um, when I left the small town and went to the big city, I imagined – I was going to run into all this, you know, high-browed, high, you know, just uh, unbelievable competence and abilities and, and you know, merit and all these other. Remember me telling you, uh, you listeners that when I got elected lieutenant governor, I told my chief of staff, hey, man, we, we got we to gotta have our A game now. I mean, you know, because, I mean, we're not in Kansas anymore. And about a month into it, I remember drinking a beer, yeah, in my office and, uh, you know, conversing or conversating with him. And kind of an inside joke there with Revit. And um and, and saying, Hey man, uh, we might be the smartest two people in this building, you know, and that's a sad <laughs> state of affairs there. Um, I think the articulation of that, that's just an interesting point that I've never thought of. If you are a group of people, and I'm talking about the ruling class, if you're a group of people who have largely been responsible for the decimation or decline of another group of people and their plight in life. Why wouldn't you revile them? Why wouldn't you find them um, to, to be the problem? You know, the, uh, the Trump voter, you could smell them at Walmart. I mean, if you are, you know, a 20-year government um, administrator, why wouldn't you say that? Because once again, you've largely been in charge of policy or helping enact policy that advantages certain group of people, disadvantages other groups. I mean, politics is a zero-sum game. I mean, I remember banging the gavel. You know, the A's have it, the nays have it. Somebody wins, somebody loses. I mean, it's not that there are no moral victories. I mean, it, the, the law is this now or the law ain't that now because of, you know, the A's have it or the, or the nays have it. So I just think that's a very interesting uh, point to make that the American middle class, and I'm talking about the working class, um, I mean, we know it's been decimated and we know largely immigration trade in China have been big contributors to the decline of the American middle class. I mean, I don't know how to graph that. I'm not sure I could if I knew how. But, but I mean, I, I know I'm right. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's pretty accurate. I know I'm right. 
Uh, but but I know for a fact that government policy relating to immigration has been bad for the American working class. Trade policy out of Washington has been bad for the American working class. The relationship with China, 2001, allowing China to be a member of the World Trade Organization, legitimizing child labor, and, and a lot of things that we would never in a million years be a part of here, but we did it in the name of corporatism and profit and uh, I mean, that, that's a weird thing for Republicans to stand on. I mean, it really and truly is. And it's kind of the conversion of where the Republican Party has landed today. And I think Tucker, once again, is kind of the poster child of that conversion. Limbaugh was not a convert. I mean, up until his dying days, Limbaugh still said things sympathetic to corporate America that I disagreed with. I thought about this over the weekend, Rev, uh, with a beer in hand. I said to myself, okay. I was a 90% agreeer with Limbaugh. I'm nearly 100 with Tucker. Tucker and I have an almost similar worldview. I mean, I didn't live in La Jolla, and I didn't go to Georgetown, and I didn't work at the National Review, but I am very much converted into this kind of an America first mindset. Limbaugh, I'm not sure ever completely bought in to that. I mean, you're not in your head. Well, you, and, and I was going to ask you, do you consider yourself a convert from what I don't to know. Well, I mean, this. once again, I didn't. I, did, I don't come from a place of, of Tucker. I mean, Tucker spent his, in, in, and this is why he has so much credibility. Tucker spent his entire life, you know, covering politics, talking about politics, trying to better understand politics. I mean, the, the beginning of the Will podcast, Will Kane podcast, when he said, I'm embarrassed how wrong I was. Well, and he was a neocon. Sure. I mean, he was absolutely were a neocon. Were you ever a neocon? I, yes, I think I was. I think I remember arguing with people. I mean, I was not an elected official. I owe four. Yeah, that, that would have been about the same time, the Iraq war. And, and I remember kind of scratching my head saying, well, I mean, you know, they wouldn't go to Iraq if they didn't have the goods. I mean, it would have, but, but yeah, there was a bit of me that said, what the hell's Iraq got to do with 9-11? You know, mm. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a good old boy from the country and I'm going, oh, what the hell's 9-11 got to do with Iraq? But I mean, they're saying we need to go. So obviously they know what, what they're doing. And, and, you know, but, but I was not at the Heritage Foundation. I mean, I was not in, in a, in a meeting with Bill Crystal and David French and, and David Frum, I mean, Tucker was in those meetings. I mean, he has the bona fides far more extensively than I ever will about that. Now, the one thing Tucker, and I think this is where, I don't know this is the, the problem Jeff and people like Jeff have with Tucker, because Tucker admits that's where he comes from. I mean, I was around a bunch of rich kids reading books. I mean, I didn't farm. I didn't work at the Nampa part town. I mean, I, I was around a bunch of, you know, a, a bunch of other rich kids who read a lot of books and tried to better understand history and, and whatever my contribution to mankind um, could be. That's what I was most interested in. And something happened along the way. And, and Tucker says he realized at some point in his life that the people he was told to trust and believe in were not to be trusted or believed in. I mean, that is the essence of who he is today. These people that I trusted and believed in are not to be trusted nor, nor believable. I mean, it, it, that, that's kind of the, I mean, we can we can go into 11 or 12 or 1 or 2 or 3, but in essence, I mean, as we try to understand, that's what, either he's the best phony there's ever been or he did have a conversion. But, but when you ask me, am I a convert? I don't know that I was one thing long enough to be a convert. I mean, I get, you know, I registered to vote in 2004. I mean, I had opinions. I mean, I liked Reagan because my dad liked Reagan. Carter was uh, made me nervous because he made my dad nervous. Um, you know, Clinton was slick willy because you, know, you see where I'm heading. I mean, I, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of opinions, but, but they were not. I mean, I, I'd made no investment 
in politics. I'd made no investment in trying to better understand the world. I mean, I understood business, I thought, to some degree, but and I knew we brushed into politics occasionally. But in 04, so 9-11's in 01, right? I mean, 2001. Um, we go to Afghanistan, and then we go to Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction. You know the story about um, Colin Powell speaking to the U.N. Security Council and, you know, the axis of evil and, uh, you know, Bush addressing the country, you know, with weapons of mass destruction. I, I think there's a fair debate about did, did, I mean, we know Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. I mean, I personally believe that Assad in Syria were very sympathetic to that cause. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I was somewhat versed, but, but, but I had nowhere much in, I had nowhere near as much invested in neoconservatism as Tucker did. I mean, Tucker basically had a career in neoconservative politics. I mean, he wrote for the National Review. He worked at the Heritage Foundation. I mean, you've got to, I mean, if you do that, you're entrenched in that. So, so, I mean, Tucker was a prosecutor of Christians until he had a, you know, a road to Damascus um, kind of moment. I I don't think most of us had that because we weren't as invested in the other. And I think that's why Tucker has credibility, and I think that's why he is the, 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 the future leading voice of how substantial this political movement can or cannot be. I'll say this. I think Tucker's voice is more important than Trump's. Really? I, said, I didn't say his personality. I mean, I didn't say his bravado. Yes. Do you think Trump has an intellectual underpinning of what he believed and what he believes now? I mean, would you agree that Tucker does? No, definitely I mean, Tucker t- does. Tucker has a, I mean, there's an underpinning of there of what he believed in and what he believes in now. That's why I think he could eventually be the, the most effective voice if this, you know, America First movement is to, to sustain and be as effective as I hope it can be. So Tucker for president. I'm for it. <laughs> I'm 1,000% on board. I mean, I'll tell you this, DeSantis and Trump, I've got a hard decision to make. Trump, DeSantis, and Tucker, no. I mean, that's as easy as can be for me. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. One of the the interesting elements of this campaign, we got real bad news. If you're Biden supporter over the weekend, the ABC News Washington Post poll has an approval rating of 36%. Um, that's underwater substantially and significantly. And now one of the top unions in America are withholding an endorsement over a disagreement of electric vehicle demands. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Jeff, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. Yeah, it's the UAW, which has about 400,000 members, pretty powerful union. Uh, is basically sitting on its endorsement for President Biden for 2024, previously endorsed him for 2020, uh, though it, it wants answers on, on how, uh, you know, how investments in electric vehicles may impact uh, members. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're undergoing this forced transition, and it's obviously affecting the auto industry. It's, it's saying that, you know, the, the federal government is pouring billions of dollars into electric vehicle transition with no strings attached and no commitments to to workers and that the ev transition is at serious risk of becoming a race to the bottom we've already seen plan closures as we switch to 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 evs and uh the uaw is saying look we want national leadership to have our back on this before we make any commitments 
But Jeff, what exactly are they asking? I mean, if the country, if the government has made its mind up, they're going to transition into the electric vehicle. I mean, obviously there are going to be, I mean, there's going to be some complications within the auto industry. What exactly are they offering or what are they asking the president to do in return for the endorsement? I think that it falls under a big umbrella of money. Uh, I mean, the industry, uh, you know, industry analysts say that as EV powertrains to, you know, displace those used by gasoline over the next decade and beyond, it's likely that both production and engineering jobs will be affected, that mechanical and engineering work uh, in the, you know, within the auto industry and parts manufacturing industry could be replaced by chemical, battery, and software engineering jobs. Um, which also puts the U.S. As a, at a competitive disadvantage. For example, few universities even offer degrees in battery engineering, and we get most of our batteries from China. Um, the UAW has expressed concerns over how these investments to transition, you know, into into electric to EVs may may impact those job losses to members. And you know, again, plant closures. Uh, they, they they talk about unjust pay rates. Um, tied with, you know, the increased focus on, on electric vehicles. And so I think there's a lot of back and forth. But, you know, as you know, Biden has been, uh, he, he's he's boasted as being the most pro-union president in history. Uh, to get that vote, um, you know, he's he's probably going to move on this. But we've heard from, you know, auto industry uh, execs within Stellantis and, and other major automakers that say, you know, more auto plant closures could happen. If these high prices for EVs cause vehicle markets to shrink from pre, pre-pandemic levels, automakers will risk losing pricing power um, as you know the chip supply recovers. And we don't really know where we're going with this auto industry uh, switch to to EVs in, in terms of you know um, the, the basically you know how we're gonna how we're gonna get all these supply all these parts, how we're gonna make them, where they're gonna be manufactured. Um, and, and how much they're going to cost. There's a lot of unknowns at this point. The UAW is saying, look, we need some assurances that you know these jobs are going to remain here in the U.S. Um, because at this point, uh, we're seeing that a lot of them are not. We're, well, not. we're not making a lot of these parts for EVs in the U.S. Well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You bet. You too. You know, that's a good setup for this article. We'll, um, we'll leave Tucker alone for a second or two and, and Will Kane. And I think Will does a good job of interviewing and kind of, kind of um, I mean, he talks a lot, but Will's a... You know, a personality, but he's going to, you're not going to get him to just ask a question and shut up for an hour. Uh, a lot of people say Rogan does a good job of um, inviting guests on and not, you know, intervening, but so much. Who, who do I know that has a similar style to well, Will I, I, I would imagine that'd be me. I mean, oh. I've got a lot to say, as Will Kane does, as <laughs> as Tucker does. Uh, whether you want to hear it or not, I got a lot to say. So, so a listener sent me an article from Seeking Alpha. I mean, that's a, um, that's a, kind of a, uh, it, it, I don't want to say an advisory newsletter, but that's kind of what it is. I mean, if you're seeking alpha, you're seeking return on your on your investment. So, um, you know, it, electric vehicles are a controversial uh, and complicated investment. In other words, am I long EV? Am I short EV? Am I long fossil fuel? Am I short? What needs to be my investment strategy? And this is kind of an interesting um, angle to take. In other words, if I'm going to buy a portfolio of stock, and I want the return on investment to be measured in the next five years, am I more likely to get a better return with EV-related investments than the ICE, internal combustion engine investment? So um, a good listener and caller to the show 
sent me this um, via Twitter or Facebook, one or the other. I can't remember if it's Twitter or Facebook private message. The energized, excuse me, the energetics of the electric vehicle. And it went back to some of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, energy returned on energy invested, the E-R-O-E-I framework. Um, they talk a lot about this. I don't want to bore you with the details because I wouldn't understand it. You probably wouldn't understand it as well. I mean, it talks about megajoules of energy, gigajoules of energy, um, energy investment required per mile traveled. I mean, that, there's a lot of engineering speak in here. But in essence, it basically says what Manasso says and what I've said for several years. And I think I'm telling you in some of these some of these examples of, of monumental change, and I'm talking about climate, I think the smartest answer anybody could give on climate change is our answer. We don't know. We honestly don't know, and you don't either. And the more you say you do, the more foolish you sound to people who, I'm not talking about who people are impressed by a bunch of big words and fancy, you know, PowerPoints and jetting around and saying people like me, you know, the extraterrestrials. I mean, we're real fortunate to have people like me in the world, you know. I mean, it's kind of an ET moment. Uh, we're we're a little bit um, ah, primo humans, and and that that's bizarre and absurd to me. But anyway, um, I highlighted a couple of points in this article that I found interesting. And once again, I, I'm not going to bore you with megajoules and gigajoules and um, how many how much energy investment has to be made per mile traveled in the ICE, in the internal combustion engine, or in the, the electric vehicle. But I will say this, that when, in conclusion, they do a summary at the end. I mean, it's a pretty extensive report. They got engineer after engineer, um, scientist after scientist. Um, they're not condemning one form of transportation uh, or, or supporting one over the other. But they do say this in um, part of their analysis, their concluding analysis. No point in human history excuse me, no point in history if humans realized a large-scale energy revolution by replacing an existing energy source with a less efficient energy source in terms of E-R-O-E-I, you know, the uh, the energy returned on energy invested. But if we do this, it will be the first time in human history. Now, now it could change a year from now. I don't think it will. It could change five years from now. There's a better chance of that. But, but there are so many unknowns. And I, it's it's confounding and confusing to me when someone, you know, not not calls into this show. We don't have that extensive a conversation, but I'll watch some of these YouTube videos and it, it'll be these experts in the field of EVs. And they're just like, hey, the, I mean, the runway's clear. I mean, there, there's no problem here. I mean, in five years, this will be the case. In seven years, this will be the case. In nine years, this will be the case. Well, the energetics of the electric vehicle are as unknown as you could imagine. I mean, it, th- there's so many things we don't have a clue. I'll give you an example. Rogan did a podcast a while back about criminal elements, the Congo, cobalt, child labor. I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, there, there's, you know, what it takes to make lithium ion batteries and where that is mined and what sort of, um, what sort of human dynamic is involved in the Congo and some of these third world countries, slave labor, child labor. I mean, it gets so complicated, you can't imagine, but nobody talks about that. I mean, all, all people say, and I love it when you break it down to, well, I mean, don't we want to stop buying oil from the Middle East? Yes, of course we do. So so what do we do? Just um, sign our name here and, and everything goes away? No, this is going to be so, co- how do we believe 
that we're going to wean ourselves off fossil fuel onto lithium ion batteries and it happens like that. I mean, that, that's what Al Gore and John Kerry have sold half of America. I mean, the country has made its mind up. We've committed intellectual resources and, and corporate dollars and just like that. We're going from the internal combustion engine to the electric vehicle. And some of you morons believe it. I mean, in all honesty, some of you folks believe it's just like that. You know, we snap our finger and we go from, you know, no carbon emitting ever again to the electric vehicle. <laughs> and you're not even allowed to ask the question, say, where do you get the energy to charge these batteries? Even if that were the case, well, I mean, where's well, that energy come once from? Once again, Rev, when you go, and I don't want to bore you. You're not being I, honest. I wouldn't understand it if I tried to read it. I mean, I could read it verbatim. Um, and, and it's just a lot of engineering speak. But there's this, um, you know, th th there's this, this critical concept that nobody in America talks about. Energy returned on energy investment. I mean, th this is an engineering theory that has been around a long, long time. And at no point in history have human beings realized a large-scale energy revolution by replacing an existing energy source with a less efficient energy source in terms of energy returned on energy investment. So it's the EROI framework. That, that, that drives a lot of this debate. And, and once again, megajoules and gigajoules. And I mean, it breaks down. The EV is a more efficient way of traveling once the battery's charged. I mean, it is. I mean, it requires less megajoules per mile after the battery is charged. But somebody's got to charge the battery. There's got to be an energy source to charge the battery. So when you look at a car sitting here full of gas, and a car sitting here fully charged, and they drive, you know, 100 miles, the internal combustion engine has, I mean, it, it's it, it, it's a bad investment. I mean, but, but when you take what it what is required to charge that electric vehicle, the internal combustion wins hands down. I mean, it's much less in the megajoule, gigajoule, energy returned on energy investment, energy investment required per mile traveled, but we're not having that debate, Rev, because the liberals have made their mind. And look, I'd love to wake up tomorrow non-dependent on foreign oil. I'd love to wake up tomorrow flipping the bird at the Saudi oil minister and Saudi prince. But that's just not a practical reality. That's not where we are. And I think, I mean, you're Jeff Manasso just now. I mean, Jeff's a journalist. And Jeff said, man, there's so many things we don't know about this. But, I mean, if you listen to John Kerry, Al Gore, and the Democrats, this thing, I mean, we're in like Flynn. I mean, it's over. I mean, just go get your Tesla. Get your subsidies, your tax credits, buy your Tesla, plug it up and go. Nothing to see here. And then it's just bizarre to me that we're going to allow government to force us down a mode of transportation that for the first time in human history is less efficient than the one we've got. Innovation creates efficiencies, right? I mean, if you, if you let the private sector do it, they'll figure out or not a way to compete with the internal combustion engine. But the government has made its mind up in its infinite brilliant and wisdom and understanding of the complexities of the free market. They've made their mind up that you're going to drive a damn electric car. I mean, that, that's just what they've made their mind about. I'm not talking about efficiencies. I'm talking about cafe stand. I'm not talking about any of the, um, the, the normally applied realities of this debate.
CAFE standards, EPA regulations. No, the government has decided, and, and I mean, uh, Manasso just said it, the billions and billions and billions of dollars that the government has incentivized the electric vehicle industry on behalf of, and, and it still can't compete. I mean, it's still, it is a less efficient way to transport people and products from point A to point B. Let's go to the phone. Here's Troy calling in from Kentucky this morning. Hey, Troy. Good morning, guys. How y'all doing today? Hey, Troy. How are you? Good. Um, I just wanted to give a little a uh, little bit of a different perspective on the whole uh, EV thing um, from a truck driver's standpoint. Um, as you heard, uh, California is banning the sale of all new diesel-powered uh, commercial vehicles by, I believe it's 2035, 36, somewhere around there. 35. It's what... And, um, you know, I don't think they realize the implications that could have. Um, first off, electric trucks are extremely expensive. And a lot of people don't know this, but most freight in this country not only moves by truck, but it's not moved by the big guys. A lot of it, a pretty good portion of it, is moved by smaller independent companies with less than 50 trucks. So how are you going to get them to convert to electric trucks when they cost two, three times what a conventional truck does? Plus, you got to worry about the issue of you can't carry as much weight on those things because of the batteries. Um, the feds have not given uh, basically what, what's called like a weight offset to where the weight of the batteries is offset so you could carry more than, you know, the 80,000 or whatever the case may be. And if they're wanting to go down this road, I predict that, you know, if it hits a nationwide scale, that's going to hit in, that's going to make inflation pretty bad. Um, I mean, that's just my two cents. Um, I just, I think they're, they're going down dangerous road, jumping the gun on doing it to commercial vehicles. Plus a lot of people don't know trucks nowadays, these new diesel engines, they're basically zero emissions. Thank you, Troy. You appreciate that. Well, I mean, I, he's reiterating some of my concerns. This is kind of interesting to me. You ready? Uh, this is in Seeking Alpha. And I know we got to take a break here, Josh. Um, it's talking about the calculations. You know, the ICE, turtle combustion engine, uh, versus the, the, uh, the electric vehicle. These calculations can be a hotly contested issue even at the highest levels of academia, proceed with caution. Nonetheless, and this is the, uh, the engineering firm GNR present their findings from the latest academic research. So uh, later in this says, we need a hotly contested debate, but not a wholly contested debate, H-O-L-Y. And they bring in the religious inference. Like, like you know, the, it's a religion. I mean, the, the people that believe in climate change believe if we don't stop burning fossil fuel, we're going to all burn to a crisp by you know, 2035, and that's just, it's a bizarre concept. I understand 10% of Americans buying that because 10% of Americans are morons. I mean, they, they don't know any better. And, and they, they'll fall for just about anything that comes down the pike that kind of aligns with their ideological bent. But but we got about 45% of Americans, it isn't a majority, but we got about 45% of Americans that believe we can get to a place of zero carbon emits by 2035. 45% of Americans believe that we can get to a place of not burning fossil fuel in, what, 12 years? That's scary. 
I mean, that, that's a scary proposition that people are that fundamentally disinformed or misinformed about the realities. And, and, and I'll make a prediction. I mean, you know, I'm not saying we're at peak EV. I mean, there's some that believe now some of these big battery plants, that they will be, I mean, that, that they will never be opened. I mean, the science will discover. In other words, you're being sold a bill of goods. And the state of South Carolina is a big actor in that. I mean, they're a big player in that. So you got a billion-dollar economic development project uh, about what is going to happen in 2035, 2040, 2045. There are some smart people out there that believe those property or those um, those industries will never open. That that the science will there'll, prevail. There'll be new technology. In the well, I mean, not just new for- technology. There'll, there'll be a revelation that you just can't do it this way. I mean, that we're not going to ever. There's no way to power this economy. Well, with the science we know about today without fossil fuel. I mean, there's just no way. Can we supplement and subsidize fossil fuel? Yeah, we should. Renewable, green, clean energy. Sign me up, coach. Put me in the game. <laughs> but, but to believe that we can stop burning fossil fuel in 12 years is an absolute pipe dream that will be an economic catastrophe it's not only the people believe it they believe it when people like aoc and john Kerry say it well they're experts and you know obama did say the science will settle so who are we to argue with the uh, okay. scientist that is barack <laughs> right. obama take a break back in a few Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. so i saw something over the weekend asking john bon jovi who the greatest guitarist he's ever seen was and he said in a second jeff beck and the person doing the interview, like, jumped all over him. Like, you asked him a question, he gave you an answer. And, and the guy said, what about Jimi Hendrix? What, 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 what about Eddie Van Halen? What about, what about Eric Clapton? You know, and I'm like, dude, what, what about Mark Knopfler? I mean, he went on, and, and Bon Jovi's really? looking like, okay, okay, yeah, they're all great. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all great, spectacularly talented. Jeff Beck's the best I've ever seen. <laughs> what in the but, world? But it, it was pretty wild. I mean, it, anyway, I don't know what I was watching. But, interviewing style there. But I mean, you know? but but yeah, and it's, it, it was all an, an interrogation, right? Know? Did you kill that person or not? Do you ask me who the best <laughs> guitarist I ever? You know, I mean, Beck's really really good. Um, really, and you ask him to answer an opinion question. That's his opinion, and you jump on him for it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and the guy was, I mean, it, it, whoever the interviewer was, it, all of a sudden said, "What about Hendrix?" And Bon Jovi said, he's really good. I mean, he's unbelievable. I've never been in a studio with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, you know, he passed before I kind of, kind of, you know, became or, or came on the scene. Oh, well, what about Eddie Van Halen? I mean, you and you and Van Halen were somewhat contemporaries of one another. I didn't ask Bon Jovi. What about Richie Sambora? Yeah, was I mean, your guitarist. <laughs> there you go. I didn't think of that. Yeah. So your guy's not as good as the others? Um, <laughs> that's Anyway, that's just kind of a... Um, I don't remember how I got there. I was, it was, I'll tell you what it was. Your guy. The deconstruction guy, the guy who deconstructs the songs. Yeah, he was deconstructing one of the ELO songs, the Electric Light Orchestra, talking about the layers of this. And, and you know how YouTube will recommend, I mean, it, you know, they read your mind and they recommend, he probably, if he's interested in that, he'll probably be interested in, uh, in this. And I was interested, but it was just like, wow, okay, I hope I'm more friendly uh, with questioning or with questions uh, than that person was. Somebody on the phone? Yep, let's go there. Jim and Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. I, I noticed you didn't play Money for Nothing. I, I don't, I don't know why. Maybe it's about that guy with the earring. I don't know. There you go. Uh, but uh, Ken, a lot of what we're talking about, or what you're talking about, is the idea of self-governance, and whether that's at home, whether that's at the state level, and what have you. Um, because how many names do you constantly mention of these these people that drive policy? 
that aren't elected. Um, uh, you know, you keep talking about Kerry and um, Al Gore, which granted they previously were elected, but they drive more policy now and they're not elected. Um, and so I kind of use that to, to go into this, is that when I called in Friday to ask if the 2010 Sentencing Reform Act was on the table, you mentioned magistrates being a problem. And, I, and obviously my quick response is that they need to be uh, elected, again, like they used to be in this state. And as a reminder, you know, we uh, we are one of two states in this country that do not put judges on the ballot in some form. Um, but then you all mentioned that the problem in Florence would be counties surrounding us would just elect Democrat magistrates continuing the problem. Um, however, the problem is that the, those Democrat senators around us are pointing Democrat magistrates now. So it really wouldn't change the problem. It would just allow Florence County to um, self-direct its own criminal justice system a lot, uh, a lot more efficiently and a lot better um, in a way that would provide for self-governance. However, if we have to look at we have to look at why they are there are Democrat senators in those counties. If you look at Clarendon County, Darlington County, and Dillon County, all three of those counties voted in favor of Trump in 2020 at a rate similar to Florence County. Further, Clarendon County and Darlington County voted in favor of McMaster in 2022 at higher rates than Florence, and Dillon just slightly less than Florence. However, because of district lines, these are essentially newly emerging Republican counties that are stuck behind enemy lines. And, and one might ask the question, why are these counties voting for Democrat senators on the state level but voting Republican at the national level? Well, the answer is they're not. If you look at Darlington County in 2020, the senator over there, Daryl Malloy, lost Darlington County by about a thousand votes. But his district includes Lee County, so he held on to a seat. So essentially, in these three counties that vote Republican, we have Democrat senators appointing essentially Democrat magistrates. Uh, so shouldn't these counties be allowed to elect their magistrates so they are not held hostage by criminals and senators who don't share their values. Um, the problem really is, Ken, though, that the General Assembly and specifically the Senate do not want to lose control over their little fiefdoms. So at what point are we counties and not Senate districts? Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jim. I mean, that's that's well thought out. I mean, I I, I don't know that I could disagree with a lot. Some really good research. Uh, of what there, he Jim. said there. Um, I mean, I'm on the record, and and Jay Phillip and Mike are friends of mine. I mean, I got a lot of friends in the General Assembly. I think the General Assembly in South Carolina has too much power. I mean, I've said that over and over again. I said that when I was in Columbia. I didn't make many friends when I said that. Um, I'm for a stronger governor. And, and I think a stronger governor that dilutes some of the stranglehold of power the General Assembly has would lead to reforms and changes. Um, but, but you're asking people who have political power and, and persuasion or sway to, to, to basically vote, vote themselves out of power. And I, I don't know how you get there. I mean, you know, Jim's argument is, I mean, in essence, what we said um, Friday, Philip, myself, and Mike, Jay was not here Friday that, you know, do you really want the, the liberal Democrat voter of Marion County electing a magistrate? Well, you've got a Democrat senator making some of that decision. Um, th these are conversations that I think we need, need to have. Um, as part of judicial reform, everything needs to be on the table.
And I think we're, we're beginning to force the hand of those who make those sorts of decisions in, uh, in, in deciding that, you know, John Scott, a senator from Charleston, if I know he's Columbia, if I'm not mistaken, is not going to reappoint someone who made a horrible, horrible decision by allowing someone to be bonded out on murder. And, uh, and you hear Mike and Philip and Jay talk extensively about what, you know, what, what sort of changes need to be brought about and made. It's going to be a complicated conversation. I mean, it really and truly is. It's going to be real complicated uh, how we get to a better place. How do we hold criminals more accountable? In essence, that's Jim's argument. That's been his argument. Um, you know, the the fact that we are a more dangerous state than North Carolina or Georgia. And I mean, the facts bear that out. Why is that? I mean, is it because of the, the you know, some of the Senate's leniency? Now, now I believe, and, and I think Jim will agree with me here, when Obama got elected in 08, a lot of his ah, a lot of his agenda was centered on you know too many people are in jail for too long a period of time on too minimal an offense and it largely affected the minority community so so minorities largely and I'm talking about African Americans mostly vote Democrat you've got an African American Democrat president it would stand to reason that there's some you know so some politics in play in play there um, I'm more than willing to help uh, facilitate a conversation between we, the people, and our elected officials on how to make sure people who are charged with murder aren't bonded out. Uh, repeat offenders, whether it's petty crimes or not, are not bonded out as liberally as, as we have. And I do believe that the Democrats in office today adhere to the Senate's leniency uh, model of 2010. And I think, you know, the, the Obama regime, the Obama doctrine, the Obama way uh, of governance um, is is still pervasive in a lot of the Democrat places or precincts or counties in South Carolina, and um, but, but you know the the argument Philip and, and Mike made is: Do we really want the liberal Democrat voters of Marion County voting a magistrate in? And and Jim saying, well, I mean, you got a Democrat senator doing it anyway. Why not? You know, we the people being held accountable than hold a um a Democrat senator. I think South Carolina's got some challenges heading its way when it comes to the General Assembly. Um, I think the disproportional population growth is going to be a big deal. I've talked a lot about that. Very few listen to me uh, about it. They'll say, ah, yeah, whatever you say. Um, but, but I think you're going to see such tremendous growth along our coast and a lack of growth in some of the inland counties that you're going to have such a disproportional representation in some of these counties. I'd love to see, as part of judicial reform, I'd love to see the governor but with a larger sway in this now, I mean, I'm, I'm, you may get a Democrat governor. And then do you like that or not? Um, that That's kind of the, um, that's the chance you take when you uh, allow a governor to have more executive authority or more, um, uh, a bigger say in how the state is governed or how the state is led. Will we be a Republican state forever? Uh, forever is a long time. You know, I don't know what happens 30 or 40 or 50 years from now, 60 years uh, from now, but I mean, th these are the conversations that, that are warranted. I mean, they're, they're very important to have. People like Jim, who does his homework, who understands, I think, what's happening today. I don't know that Jim's ever said, I know we should do it my way or we're not going to get it right. I've never said, I know we should do it my way or, or we're getting it wrong. I've never heard Philip or Mike or Jay say, you know, I know we got to do it this way. Um, th there's got to be a perpetual and ongoing conversation about how to make sure, I think we're all after the same thing. I think that is to keep violent criminals in jail, you know, and, and, and not 
running down the Magnolia Mall with a gun in their hand. I talked to T.J. Joy a little bit Friday afternoon about that, and it's interesting. It's so interesting to me. T.J. and I were talking. They actually called me and said, hey, uh, you know, I appreciate the support you give us. And, you know, and, and, and over the airways and, and I asked him to explain, I don't think TJ would mind me, would mind me saying this. So you've got a violent offender running down a shopping mall in our hometown. And, uh, the, the guy with the gun, you know, is, uh, you got a, you got a law enforcement agent with a taser running after a guy with a gun and, uh, and the guy with the tasers thinking about, you know, the, the civilians, you know, the likelihood of shooting at someone uh, returning fire and killing an innocent bystander. So it was a very complicated ordeal. Um, but that's a violent offender sh- who should have never been uh, bonded out, never should have been bonded out, should have been in jail until he met um, trial and was found guilty or innocent of that very uh, serious charge and offense. But that's not what the case. I mean, we've got well, we've got an issue in South Carolina. And, and, you know, bond reform is not just the only issue here. Judicial reform, overreaching, all-encompassing judicial reform is something that I hope the state is very serious about. Um, you know, th- th- I think there's a fair debate. Um, Jordan Lowe, Rick and Bob, and I have this conversation about lawyers being allowed to elect judges. Should a lawyer in the General Assembly be allowed to cast a ballot in favor or against a judge? I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's a very fair question. Th- th- these are all realities, guys. And I'm going to tell you, the only way self-governance works, and this really goes back to the cathedral at the national level. Now, the, the state level is uniquely different than that. And I don't think anybody would accuse the, the folks in the General Assembly of being similar-minded to the people in, in our nation's capital. You may not like what they do every single time, but there's a citizen legislator aspect to that that, that I don't think exists in, uh, in Washington. I mean, we talk a lot about the debt you know, and then the balanced budget amendment in the state of South Carolina. But but aside of that, I do believe that the majority of, you know, the um, the House members are in constant communication with the people they represent. It's not a full-time job. You don't get on a plane on, you know, Sunday night or Monday morning and fly to Washington and just kind of check out from the real world until the next Thursday when you come home or Friday morning when you come home. I mean, there's a reality. When you leave the state house. You go to the grocery store, you go to church, you live your life amongst the people that you um that you have, you know, the, the governing authority over. And I think that leads to to better government. But there's still some issues and they, they still seem to or still still need to be worked out and debated. And I want to say this. I mean, I think Revel agree with me. The easy thing for Rick and Ballo and Jordan to do is hide. And just come out of, you know, every every four years or every two years, four in Mike's case, two in Philip and, and Jay's case, I applaud those guys for coming on the air every Friday morning and taking your, your questions. Sometimes they're not the friendliest of questions. Right. Sometimes they don't have uh, the perfect answer. But I think we live, and I think we talked a little bit about this last, I think we live in a world today where the general public respect a guy or lady who's willing to come on uh, the air and say, hey, here's how I see it. I mean, I respect that you may see it a little bit differently than that, but I think in Washington, it's easy to hide. It's easy to go over there and not answer any questions until it's time to run for office again. And then you run all these ads and ask for all this money and say, hey, give me another shot and I'll do this. No, these three guys are willing to come on the air every Friday morning. Um, Josh, we don't screen calls. I mean, I don't say, hey, don't let them on because they may ask a tough question. Don't let that person ask this of uh, Philip Lowe or Jay or Mike or any of the others. And I think that is the greatest public service we probably provide 
to our audiences, allowing three elected officials to come on every single week and and take it as it is. You know, here here's the question. Um, Jim has a question about judicial reform. Um, this other person has a question about redistricting. This person has a question about you know uh, the the Murdoch case. And I mean, th- th- those are. I, I just think we live in an era today, and I get it. I mean, th- there was a period of time that I would have probably agreed. Just stay out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. Uh, you know, put your signs out every two years and tell people, hey, you appreciate the honor. But but I think we live in a new era. I think we live in a world now where media is so in your face. It's so available, readily available, instantaneously available. And I think elected officials who confront the public where they are. Uh, you don't have to get in your car and drive to the state house and schedule a meeting with Lowe or Jordan I mean, or, or Rick and Bob. They, they're here every Friday morning, and, um, and I just think they're rewarded for that. Do, do, do all the questions get answered? Of course not. I mean, they're, they're, you know, these guys are three people. One is in the Senate, two in the House. There's a lot of others that, that have a say in what happens on abortion, what happens on taxes, what happens, you know, on, um, on criminal reform or judicial reform. But, but once again, um, they, they, I don't want to say they take the incoming because it's normally not incoming, but they embrace the debate. That's a better way to say it. They embrace the opportunity for you to reach out to your elected official and say, Hey, I want to know why we're not doing it this way, or I want to know why we're not doing it that way. And I think those sorts of people, and I'm not saying it because they're friends of mine, but I think that mindset, that, that temperament, that sort of availability to you, the people needs to be rewarded when you go to the ballot box, because once again, whether you like where they stand or not, whether you agree every time with where they stand or not, they're willing to engage you and, and, you know, give some explanation for why they believe what it is that they believe. And I'd say it's very unique and rare, especially in today's climate, where they'll do that. I mean, they are elected officials and they'll do it. And, and I like it because it, I think it, it enhances what the community of which we are members of our listeners, us, our representatives, and I just think it's a good well, thing. But it's, and it's, and it's, no, it's not happening a lot across this country. It's easy for me to tell you what I would do and what I could do and and, and what I here's how I would have handled it had I been. No, I mean, that, that's easy for me to do. I'm, I'm a talking head. I'm a pundit. I mean, I don't go to the public every two, four, or six years and say, hey, judge me accordingly. Cast a ballot for or against me. I mean, it's easy for me to do that every single day but these guys have a, a responsibility i mean they you know they, they perform a duty within an elected body and it's not a monolith i mean it's not a uh we, we saw a king uh my wow i can't believe i mean you know in 2023 we still got kings uh but anyway that, oh, I, that's, I thought maybe you went over to the coronation uh, the, the coronation Friday. the coronation of king charles yeah. um yeah it's good to be king, if only for a while. Just sit there in velvet and give him a smile. Uh, I guess he's giving him a smile. <laughs> in the that, words of Tom Pitt. Yeah, in that, in that velvet. But, um, wow, you know, the pomp and circumstance. Uh, bad tequila used to make me vomit. Um, the, the, the coronation of a king is about like bad tequila, as far, <laughs> as, far as I'm concerned. One makes me recoil about as much uh, as the other. 843 661 0937. Let's go to the, let's take a break. I don't want to get too far behind. We'll come back. Got another call. We'll do that on the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. David in the PD. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Hey, man. Uh, money for nothing. Now, that was Mark Muffler. Dire Straits got with Stang, right? 
your man from Pamplico, Stang. Uh, Eddie Van Halen is the best guitarist. Uh, Ken, I think London Town was part of that Dire Straits song. When I watched this thing with King Charles the other day, I said to myself, I said, man, to me, King Charles is a high-maintenance little Cocker Spaniel-looking dog. That's what King Charles means to me. I guess Jefferson was probably trying to swim that ocean yesterday to try to point out what was going on with that. But when you, you talk about the elitist globalist OG, I mean, and then did you see, and I was thinking about the Seinfeld watching crowd was watching that. When that, when that Charles came out on that balcony, he looked as silly as you could be. I said, good gosh, they spent all this money for, for this to see him and Camilla. Uh, I guess that's her name. But, Ken, did you see Springsteen the other night? I did not. Rev sent me oh. something of Springsteen over the weekend of him um, kind of regular Joe singing at a bar in Ireland, right, Rev? I saw that, yeah. yeah. So I sent you the link. Yeah, he yeah. Was, went to a, an Irish pub of some sort and just sat there with a few people around the table and sang his hit, My Hometown, right? Yep, you're right. Somewhere along the line, you can find him. He's Michelle Obama and Kate Capshaw are singing background for him. Glory days. Mm. And this is in Barcelona. I'm glad I missed and, that. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I probably missed it because I'm not as tech savvy as you guys. It's, but I think this was fairly recently. When I think of Michelle Obama, obviously that's, uh, you know, Springsteen and, and um, you know, her husband had their little series or whatever together. But Kate Capshaw, that is Mrs. Steven Spielberg. And Ken, back in your day, uh, back that second Indiana Jones movie, she was the female star in that movie, and I guess Spielberg directed it, and they must have met on site. But you know what gets me? She had a song. The, the opening of that movie, uh, she does a little number, I guess, in a nightclub in Hong Kong or somewhere. But you get a kick out of this. It's called Anything Goes. And that's what this Democrat Party and the globalists and all that have become. Anything goes. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Um, where was that? That was in, um, I mean, I know it's in Ireland, but where in Ireland? Dublin. Dublin. Okay. Because so. he's on the European side of his tour, the foreign side of his tour. The non-American. He's more at home now. <laughs> with the Europeans drinking a beer now than, than he formerly was. And then I saw another picture yesterday of him in, I mean, it's still in Ireland, but it said a, it, it, he's not singing. I mean, he's talking about. I, I would say live liberty, the pursuit of happiness, but socialists don't talk about live liberty <laughs> and the pursuit of, um, of happiness. If I were, um, if I were in the pub, I'd say, Hey, Bruce, um, how about a round on all of us? I read that story about Sony records, you know, paying you out and, um, you did better than your boy Dylan. So, uh, both of you did exceptionally well, but you did a little better than your boy Dylan. Um, can this round be on you? Uh, <laughs> but he does seem to be more at ease in Europe. I mean, really and truly, Bruce seems to be more comfortable in his own skin uh, when he's with fellow Wonder why. quasi-socialists. I, I don't, I don't, I'm joking around. I don't have any idea why uh, I perceive that uh, to be the case. Let's go to the phone. Barry in Chirag. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, and uh, I was in Denver last week. Woke up early to hear y'all every day. Enjoyed it. Uh, not going back out there anytime soon, thank God. Uh, it's turned into Portland. Uh but whatever. Uh, Ken, who is the replacement for Joe Biden? We know it won't be Robert Kennedy. Uh, they'll take him out. So it, is it Big Mike? Is Big Mike going to make a run for 
the president? It seems like that that would be the play for the Democrat, considering they like the transgender movement so much. So it would be a perfect opportunity for Michelle to come out. So uh, just curious to see what your call on that is, because they don't have anybody in the bullpen other than Newsom. And I haven't heard anything about him in like six months. So uh, just curious to see what your thought is on that. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, Newsom comes to mind. Uh, Pritzer in Illinois comes to mind. Uh, obviously, Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Um, is there somebody I'm missing here? Is there a is there a Donald Trump on the Democrat side? I mean, is there somebody out there, uh, not not a politician? I'm thinking about like Mark Oprah. Zuckerberg. You know, is there somebody? Yeah, Oprah. I mean, there you go. I mean, is there Oprah Winfrey? Because she'd be the the Democrat equivalency to Donald Trump takes fame and fortune, you know, kind of makes her way into the political world. And I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have any idea. I just believe, as I said much earlier, there's a reason ABC News, Washington Post, and the media in general have made a big deal out of this poll. Now, now everything I'm saying is speculation. I've not read a New York Times report. I've not read a Washington Post report. I've not seen anything on NBC News. I mean, my instinct tells me that the DOJ is going to be forced to do something with Hunter Biden. And they'll probably do something in the next couple of days. Comer's asking to wait until Wednesday. He's having a press conference Wednesday where he's going to reveal some of the paper trail. He says that the the whistleblower has corroborated, and I'm talking about shale companies and LLCs and offshore banking accounts and the Biden crime family. Now, once again, I've not seen that, but we've heard that reported time and time again on Fox News. No other media outlet. I mean, the Wall Street Journal covered it a little bit, but nobody else anywhere is talking about about that. Um, There's a reason that Stephanie Rule asked Biden about Hunter Biden. I mean, none of this is happenstance. I don't buy that for a second. I mean, we talk about the cathedral. I mean, it's a monolith. It moves as one. But, but, but it, you know, when, when I say it doesn't wink and nod, it really doesn't have to. It's almost like, you know, Larry Bird knew where Kevin McHale was going to be before he knew. And Magic Johnson knew where James Worthy was going to be before James Worthy um, knew. Uh, I don't know anything about hockey. I asked a buddy of mine who does. I said, what is it about Gretzky? He said, well, I mean, Gretzky would be, you know, kind of like Larry and Magic. Like you just said, they kind of have a, a an intuition, instinctive ability to see things and and perceive things to happen before they they actually do. I'm not professing to have any of that sort of ability, but there's a reason that they didn't run from that poll number. I mean, I'll assure you of that. There's a reason that they didn't bury that 36% approval rating. I mean, trust me. Trust me, guys. There's a reason. Let me say this again. (laughs) There's a reason they didn't bury that 36% approval rating. There's a reason Donna Brazil said I couldn't hardly sleep the next morning. I mean, the next night when I saw that number, that 36% approval rating, I mean, that, that leads me to believe that there is something out there that they believe is more troubling and coming the Biden's way. And, and once again, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I mean, Comer will do that Wednesday if he's not a liar. Now he may be a liar and, and not have the goods on anything, but he says he has an IRS whistleblower that corroborates a lot of the banking information, uh, the shell companies, the LLCs, the, the offshore bank accounts, uh, the, the, the paper trail of the money going from here to there. I mean, Comer, 
yesterday morning on Maria Bart at Roma show, I mean, basically said that. And, and I mean, we, if you were with us this morning when he said, you know, I hope the, the DOJ doesn't do anything until Wednesday. And, and that leads me to believe that Comer, that there's a ranking member on that oversight committee who has the same information Comer has, and they probably fed it to put folks in the media and at DOJ. And out of that comes what I would predict is a, probably a criminal charge, that gun violation, that's the felony. I mean, he lied on an application to obtain a firearm. That's a felony. And um, and I mean, the DOJ can say, you know, we treat the president's son just like we do anybody else that obtains, you know, a, a firearm in America illegally. That's not what Comer's after. That's not what the American people are interested in. I mean, in all honesty, I shouldn't say this because I should care, but I don't. I don't care how Hunter Biden gets a gun. I mean, I, I you know, I like the fact that we've got, you know, background checks and we got certain safeguards in place. I think the Second Amendment needs some policing, not much, but some. Um, I'm not an absolutist when it comes to the Second Amendment. I, I get those who are. I mean, the textualist, constitutionalist says the Second Amendment gives me that right, and I don't need to have anybody's permission. I accept that as a legitimate argument. I ain't one of those. I mean, I'm a little bit different than that. But but when when that poll number became as mainstream as it did, because that's a bad number, and they'd bury it. I mean, they would bury that number. The media would bury that number, and it would never see the light of day other than the Fox audience and the talk radio show audience. I mean, we would uh, kind of beat the drum of the public are deeply disappointed in Biden's ability to, you know, govern the country's affairs. But when Brazil and when Stephanopoulos and when, you know, the New York Times and Washington Post are reporting on their own poll and it's so negative, it leads me to believe something's up something's up and i think the out is to indict hunter biden because that really but that that gives the mainstream media a little meat on the bone and when comer does his thing wednesday you know all of that'll be i mean they can't prove that i mean that's a whistleblower who's the whistleblower i mean there's a reason he's a whistleblower he's not standing behind a podium you know corroborating you see where i'm headed i mean there there's some squishiness in that so so i'm predicting that by Wednesday, and I could be wrong. I mean, I could be dead wrong. Been wrong many times in my life, and I'm kind of making somewhat of a bizarre prediction to say that by Comer's press conference, Hunter Biden will have been indicted on some sort of weapons crime because that's the felony. I mean, that that the uh, the tax charges would be would be misdemeanors. That's the felony, and that could um that that could basically. I mean, the DOJ could have a press conference at the Biden administration could have a press conference and, you know, uh, it is with deep regret that the president has been informed about his kid, you know, obtaining a firearm, wish it had never happened. That's when he was a drug addict and his life was out of control. He's got his life kind of, kind of back together. I mean, that, that would be the narrative. I mean, if I'm running the Biden campaign, that would be my narrative. You know, he's my kid. He's had some struggles and some issues, but they didn't trace any money back to us. That, that, that's, that's the get out of jail free card um, so to speak. And, and Comer, you know, has persisted that they've got the goods, you know, they've got the bank records that corroborate the whistleblower that the Biden family was getting paid from foreign governments, that this is speculation. This is conjecture that there is nothing, nothing has been proved up until now, but, but I'll simply ask the question I did at six Oh five this morning, how did the Bidens get wealthy? 
I mean, the Trump business empire, the Trump, you know, um, conglomerate. I mean, I get it, wins and successes. And you can say, well, I mean, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, his son, Eric, Jared Kushner. Kushner got, you know, a billion dollars from the Middle East, and Kushner got another billion from here and there and yonder. And, you know, I, I think we've investigated that. If we're not, we will. I mean, Trump's not going to do anything without being investigated. We're, we're assured of that. But, but you know, is there any meat on this bone of James Comer and the Oversight Committee having data, not, not opinions, not just a whistleblower, but a whistleblower saying things that can be substantiated and corroborated by bank records? I mean, that to me, that's the big story. And Comer says they're having a press conference to tell the American people on Wednesday the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. 843-661-0937. We'll be back on the other side with some Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. I think we had a couple of callers, but we had to um, clear the lines for our trivia. Pepsi of Florence is crazy enough and kind enough, decent and respectful enough to do what we need them to do and sponsor our nonsensical <laughs> Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia question. I've had my Celsius, I've had my coffee, I've had my um, life water. I'm good to go. So, here's our trivia question. It is Darlington week, right? Yep. I mean, when I was younger, Labor Day was the big race. But this is, you know, the day Darlington got its second race back was a good day for this um, this area and the state in general. Here's my question. Once again, um, Darlington week, the correct answer, when it's a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays, to make Friday's T-shirt. Um, Harold Brazington was largely responsible for constructing Darlington Raceway. It's not an oval, but rather shaped like an egg. Why did Mr. Brazington shape the racetrack like an egg? In, in other words, why did they why did they make one end of the track look a little different than the other end of the track? 843 0937 is our number. Does anybody know the answer? Hi, you are on the air. You know the answer? Yes. Let's hear it. To not mess with the menopon that was on the property. You are right. Who is this and where are you calling from? My name is John, and I'm calling from Hartsfield. John, hold on just a second, my man, and I'll get you back to No Shot Josh. He'll get your information. Congratulations, and thank you for listening. A couple of takes Monday. Excuse me couple of um takes Mondays to make Friday's t-shirts and a six-pack of Pepsi product heading John's way. But, yeah, uh, Mr. Brazington didn't want to uh, mess around with, goof around with the minnow pond, um, so they left it alone, kind of um shortened up the corner, <laughs> and um, it is shaped like, a, like an egg instead of an oval, and that makes it a little more difficult and challenging uh, for the drivers. Uh, you know, I love NASCAR. I particularly love Darlington, and um, oh, not yeah. just because it's here and it's home, but because it's here and it's home, <laughs> and um, and it's a um, it's a period where a lot of the sports world is paying close attention to Darlington. And when I think of cities, and I think of racing, I mean I'm talking about American cities. I'm not talking about you know Monaco and uh, uh, the Belgium Grand Prix. I'm talking about American cities, and I think about racing. I think, obviously, Indianapolis, no question about it. I think of Daytona. 
Uh, no question about sure. it. And I think of Darlington. Yep. I mean, I really and truly do. I understand Charlotte's the epicenter of NASCAR. I mean, Charlotte's where everybody, the drivers live on Lake Norman in these big, huge homes. And um, but but the teams are normally located in um in Charlotte. The bigger teams, the um uh, the conglomerates would be located in Charlotte. But Darlington still speaks to the 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 truism, Tra- yeah, tradition, and no, history. No question about it. All of the good stuff, and um and that is the good stuff. So um John, congratulations. Yeah, people from Hartsville should know the answer out of that question. But there was a minnow pond. The um I mean the answers that have been given on this test or on this quiz that I got online, um, a bar, a railroad, a highway. I mean, a lot of people came up with different reasons as to why he had to build an egg-shaped track instead of an oval-shaped track. But um, but we wish Kerry Tharp nothing but success, nothing but good luck this weekend getting ready. Excuse me, this week getting ready for this weekend. I mean, it's Mother's Day. That complicates things a bit. My wife has begged me every day less uh, since last Wednesday to carry her to the race mm-hmm. for Mother's Day. Um, I may give in at some point in time and uh, and carry her over to Darlington. You know, my, my <laughs> daughter and I went last year to qualifying, and she said, I quote, it's the, it's the one thing I've most underestimated in my entire life. Uh, the track's so much bigger than you imagine. The cars are so much louder. The thunder off the engines. I mean, it reeks of testosterone, rest assured. It reeks of masculinity. Maybe that's why, uh, you know, America frowns upon the NASCAR fan. Um, too much testosterone, too much uh, masculinity. Thank you, John. Thank you to Pepsi to Florence. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.